В результате анализа оценки правительство Чеченской Республики делает следующее заявление. Только может быть тем, что он более кровавый. И мы имеем полное право применять к нему все доступные средства, если средств юридических недостаточно. Вот он сейчас, вот к чему он вот, почему он приехал, вот пришел к тому долгой, да, вопросу. Это ерунда. Hello, Panastorians. Welcome back. I gotta stop saying Panastorians. <laughs> Do you guys like being called that? Or is it weird? Let us know. I don't know if I like calling our fans yeah. Panastorians. It's a little so. cringy, but you know, here yeah. we are. Welcome back. I guess we're more and more transforming into hardcore history, where we release episodes kind of sporadically, but they're really long. So... <laughs> We have an excuse for this one being long because it is a one hell of an episode and it is also our season finale. So we wanted to make it a little special. I mean, I feel like we do probably talk about more than we might need to, but I do think that this is an episode that just requires a ton of context to really understand the ultimate goal of the episode, which is to talk about the Chechen wars. I think that you need to really like know the history of Chechnya to honestly understand those wars per like properly. It's just a it's a place that needs a lot of context. So I think that um uh, yeah we decided to just make this a big one for you. Yeah, it's hopefully hopefully worth the wait. It's summer, uh masks are starting to come off. Hopefully you guys are going on vac- like long road trips, vacation. Hey we got an episode for your road trip. Perfect. <laughs> Maybe a little depressing, but you know what? It's fine. <laughs> it's cool. History. Can it's be not, fun. unfortunately, the summer feel good History podcast. Of, no, history doesn't always end up being that way. No. In fact, it's mostly not. But um, <laughs> with that, I guess we'll just jump right in. Yeah, pretty much. We're gonna we'll do housekeeping just really quickly for a certain fan of ours. Kashmir uh, yeah, is coming. I promise. We. I apologize that I keep pushing back when Kashmir is going to happen, but it is coming. We have planned it. We're going to do it. So with that said, we're going to dive into Chechnya. So for those of you who don't know, Chechnya is a constituent republic in Russia, which the reason why I stuttered there is because I realized I'm making a few people mad (laughs) by saying that. I mean, it's technically the case. It is technically part of the Russian Federation. It is de jure. Yeah. Part of the Russian Federation, so I'll just leave it at that. It is in the North Caucasus, which is mostly comprised of Russian constituent republics, such as Dagestan, North Ossetia. Um, I believe Ign- Georgia Ign- is part of it. Ignushetia. Yeah, I believe Georgia is in the North Caucasus, but I'm not sure. It, it I think, is technically part of it, but it, it's like... A little debatable, but it's at least in, it's in the region. It borders uh, North Ossetia and Dagestan, I think. I believe so, yes. And well, for those of you who don't even know where any of these countries are, they're in the southern part of Russia. Well, oh, okay. So they're in the very southern part, uh, south of the, in the Caucasus Mountains, which kind of run through like Azerbaijan and Armenia. Yeah, Azerbaijan and like Armenia, that region, Armenia. Georgia. So, yeah, like the southwest kind of corner i guess of the yeah, former soviet the, Union. they're in between the black sea and the caspian sea yeah which makes it a very important uh region in terms of oil yeah and you'll find out uh it was a very important region dating way 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 back so as i usually do on these episodes we have some demographics here from two different eras 
1929, the, the Chechen ethnicity made up 67.3% of the population, while Russians made up 23.5% of the population. While others, which included Kamyaks, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing, I know I'm mispronouncing that, Avars, Ignush, etc., made up 9%. In 2020, however, Chechens made up 97.4%, Russians made up only 0.9%, and the others made up 1.8%. So you're probably all wondering what the hell happened. You're going to find out. That's what this episode's about. As for religion, 95% of the population of Chechnya, they follow Islam, while, while they are mostly of the Sufi sect. Currently, the as I mentioned before, it is a constituent republic within the Russian Federation, nor located in the North Caucasus of West Russia. So the earliest known settlement dates back to 40,000 BCE. For thousands of years, the Northern Caucasus people lived free from outside rule. The Southern Caucasus would be ruled by the Romans, Persians, Mongols, Ottomans, etc. The remoteness of the general area in the Northern Caucasus meant the area was decentralized, operating in an almost city-state-like structure. The surrounding mountains was an instrument in keeping potential invaders out, leaving the culture in the region largely untouched for centuries. As feature history puts it, the people of the Caucasus mainly had only three priorities, your family, your faith, and your freedom. For those of you who don't know, you should go check out Feature History on YouTube right now because he's fucking awesome. And he did actually a pretty amazing couple, couple episodes on this topic, but listen to ours first. The region became somewhat notorious to the outside world due to its isolation and seemingly impenetrability. Feature History also put it, only a Caucasian could conquer the Caucasus. However, as new empires rose and stronger leaders took power, the Northern Caucasus would be the main focus to a great empress. So, uh, Russian entry into the North Caucasus region followed Ivan the Terrible's conquest of the horde of uh, golden hordes of Kana or golden hordes Kanates of Kazan and Astrakhan in 1556, which initiated a long struggle for control over the region's trade routes, with contemporary powers including Persia, the Ottoman Empire, and the Crimean Kanate. During the 16th century, the Russian Tsardom tried to win influence in the North Caucasus by allying themselves with local princes such as Temruk of Kabarda and Sheikh Morza Okotsky of Chechnya. Temruk controlled Northwest Caucasus and, with Russia's help, managed to stave off Crimean incursions. The North Caucasus was largely controlled by Shamkal princes of Arkhans and the powerful Okotsky lord Sheikh Morza, who I mentioned above, and his influence reached all of the Northeast Caucasus. These princes bought weapons and settled Russian Cossacks, near the Terek River, to strengthen their rule and influence. Sheikh Mirza Okotsky had, his, had in his army around 500 Cossacks combined with 1,000 Elk Chechens, and often waged anti-Iranian and anti-Ottoman campaigns in De or Dagestan. So, Cossacks essentially were like, like a Russian militia that were like really loyal to the Tsar and were like definitely an arm of the, the Russian Empire. They were not really official military, but they were like a special unit that... Where, yeah, they weren't they weren't really official. They were kind of they were a militia and they were very loyal to the Tsar. They're kind of treated like a separate ethnic group in a way. Yeah, they are, but they are ethnic Russian, and they're primary like they're they're a cavalry unit. Um, they're actually quite interesting, but they are a cavalry unit and they were basically the arm of the Tsar for like colonizing the republics. They were the colonizing force more or yeah. less. I just want to point something out. Uh, you might hear us interchange between caucasus and caucasus yeah i do believe it's just a tomato tomato thing yeah i think so too. so yeah like just just so you know you're gonna hear us say <laughs> go it jump in between but yeah 
Yeah. Anyway, uh, Sheikh Morse's politics gave the Russian Tsardom more influence in the region, and several Russian forts and Cossack villages were set up along the Terek River. Prior to this, the Cossacks had almost no presence in Chechnya or Dagestan. These forts caused Chechens to, dis to distrust uh, Sheikh Morza since forts were built on Chechen pastures. So, the lowland Chechens and Elk Chechens, loyal to the Chechen Mullah Meta, uh, joined the outcast Kumik Prince Sultan Mut, who for a long time had allied himself with the Chechens, living south of the Terek. Sultan Mut was at first against Russian policies in the Caucasus, and he, along with Chechens, Kumiks, and Avars, fought Russian Cossacks and burnt down Russian forts. The Russian Tsar retaliated by sending military expeditions into Dagestan. Both of the expeditions resulted in Russian defeat and culminated in the Battle of Karaman Field, where a Dagestani Chechen army under Sultan Mut defeated the Mar Russian army. The Russian Imperial Army was actually, like, not terrible at this time, but the Chechens, uh, like Jonah and uh, friends at Future History mentioned, only a, Caucas or only a Caucasian can beat a Caucasian. <laughs> These defeats and failed expeditions by Russia led to the weakening of Prince Sheikh Morza and his assassination in 1596. Uh, Sultan Mut continued to pursue an anti-Russian policy into the 17th century and was known to sometimes live among the Chechens and raid the Cossacks with them. However, that changed as Sultan Mut went to the Russians several times asking for citizenship. This switch in policy angered many Chechens and led them to distancing themselves from him. In 1774, Russia gained control of Ossetia and with the strategically important Darial Pass from the Ottomans. Catherine the Great began to build the Georgian military road through the Darial Pass, along with the military forts to protect the route. These activities antagonized the Chechens, who saw the forts as both an encroachment on the traditional territories of the mountaineers and as a potential threat. Around this time, Sheikh Mansour, a Chechen imam, began preaching a purified version of Islam and encouraging the various mountain peoples of the North Caucasus to unite under the banner of Islam in order to protect themselves from further encroachments. The Russians saw him as a threat to their interests in the region, and in 1785, a force was sent to capture him. Failing to do so, it burned down his unoccupied home, but the force was ambushed by Mansur's followers on its return journey and was annihilated, thus beginning the first ever Russian-Chechen War. This war lasted several years, with Mansur employing mostly guerrilla tactics and Russians conducting further punitive raids on Chechen villages until Mansur's capture in 1791. This pattern would repeat itself in future Chechen conflicts. <laughs> so Chechnya to me is a lot like Afghanistan because it's just one of those places where people continuously invade them, and try to take it over, and even though they're not like the most united force, or the most, the strongest, or the best, best trained, they are definitely the most, like, resolute in their goal to remain independent. So, it's really hard to fuck with that. <laughs> it's really hard to beat that. In 1817, the Russian Empire invaded the Caucasus again with the purpose of annexing the region. The war took place over the reign of three different Russian czars, and the Russian control of the Georgian military highway down the center divided the war into two different locations the Russian-Circassian War in the west, and the Murid War in the east. The Russian armies that served were very eclectic, alongside ethnic Russians fought Cossacks, Armenians, Georgians, Caucasus Greeks, Ossetians, and some soldiers of Muslim background like Tatars, Bashkirs, and Kazakhs, Uyghurs, and Turkmen. Muslim soldiers of the Imperial Russian Army had played some parts in religious discussions and wooed allies for Russia against their fellow Muslim brethren in the Caucasus. The Russian invasion encountered fierce resistance, and, and the first period of invasion coincided with the death of Alexander I and the Decemberist Revolt in eight, of 1825. It achieved surprisingly little success, especially compared with the recent succeed, or successes over Napoleon in 1812. Between 1825 and 1833, little military activity took place in the region against native North Caucasians, as wars with Turkey and Persia occupied the Russians. 
After considerable success in both wars, resulting in the annexation of Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Russia resumed fighting in the Caucasus against various rebelling native ethnic groups and was the start of a genocide committed by the Russians against the Caucasian people, most notably the Circassian people. And this was also not the first genocide that ever occurred against the North Caucasian people by the Russians. Uh, the Russian government employed practices of forced migration and expulsion of native Circassians from their homeland, as well as brutal ethnic cleansing and mass murder. Some of the recorded methods used by Russian and Cossack forces to entertain themselves included ripping open the bellies of pregnant women and feeding their babies to dogs. Russian General Grigory Zas described the Circassians as subhuman filth and justified their killing and use in scientific experiments and allowed Russian soldiers to rape girls as young as seven. A large deportation was launched against the remaining population before the end of the war in 1864, and it was mostly completed by 1867. Only a small percentage uh, accepted to surrender and to resettle within the Russian Empire. The remaining Circassian populations who refused to surrender were thus variously dispersed, resettled, tortured, and most of them killed en masse. Numbers vary, but it is estimated that 80 to 97% of the Circassian nation was murdered. Russian units met heavy resistance during this conflict, notably led by Imam Shamil. He led the mountaineers from 1834 until his capture in 1859. In 1843, he launched a sweeping offensive aimed at the Russian outposts of Avar in Avaria. In the following four weeks, he would capture every Russian outpost in Avaria except for one, exacting over 2,000 casualties on the Russian defenders. In 1845, Shamil's forces achieved their most dramatic success when they withstood a major Russian offensive led by Prince Vorontsov. This conflict was known as the Murid War, where the mountaineers of Dagestan and Chechnya united against the Russians and held out until 1859, while the Russo-Circassian War continued in the Western Mountains. Shortly after these conflicts ended, another one broke out, known as the Russo-Turkish War, where an Eastern Orthodox coalition led by Russia fought the Ottoman Empire in the Balkans and the Caucasus. The conflict originated, er, bleh, originated in the 19th century Balkan nationalism, an additional motivation of the Russians to recover territorial losses after the Crimean War, as well as to reestablish itself in the Black Sea. Go check out our previous episode on the, on the Crimean War <laughs> to understand why the Crimea is so important to Russia. Uh, the Russians also sought to support the political movement attempting to free Balkan nations from the Ottoman Empire. Russia and Serbia are historical allies, as we know from World War I and a lot of other conflicts. Except for the time of Tito and Stalin, they weren't really pals then. But uh, anyway, the, we digress. The Russians won the conflict, pushing the Ottomans all the way back to the gates of Constantinople. But there was a timely inter intervention by the Western European great powers, because of course there was. As a result, Russia only managed to claim provinces in the Caucasus, while Serbia, Montenegro, and Romania formally broke from the Ottoman Empire. By the end of the 1860s, the Russians used a different colonization technique in order to re weaken resistance in the area. They offered Chechens and Ignish to leave Chechnya for the Ottoman Empire, and it estimated that 80% of Chechens and Ignish left the Caucasus during this deportation. It had the desired effect of weakening the resistance. He went from open warfare to insurgent warfare. As you do. Yep. Pretty much. Yeah, so that was the, the Tsarist period, I guess. And this context is important because you're really just going to see it continuing <laughs> for the next forever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's there's a pattern really between Russia and Chechnya. Russia just really can't get over Chechnya. So yeah, it's like a stalker story. It's not we'll really never, a love story. Never ever underestimate a people's will to be free. will to be free. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. Conflicts in the area generally continued until December twenty first, nineteen seventeen, when Ignushetia, Chechnya, and Dagestan declared independence from Russia and formed a single state, the United Mountain Dwellers of the North Caucasus, also known as the Mountainous Republic of the Northern Caucasus. The Union included seven states, quote-unquote states, 
allocated on a national basis and united according to a confederative principle in the territories. Dagestan, Ignushechia, Chechnya, Ossetia, Circassia, and the Nogai steppes, and also claims in Abkhazia, although the Union never had direct control over that land. The cabinet ministers of the Mountain Republic included representatives from almost all regions of the North Caucasus. The Union of the Peoples of the Northern Caucasus was created in March 1917, and an executive committee of the Union was elected. The 1847 Constitution of Imam Shamil was readopted on August 5, 1917, by the Central Committee of the Northern Caucasus. The Independent Republic was officially proclaimed on May 11, 1918, after the collapse of the Russian Tsarist Empire during the Russian Revolution. The Republic... <laughs> Interestingly, we've never actually talked about the Russian Revolution. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, <laughs> the amount of times we've we, mentioned it. Literally, though. Anyways, the Republic's capital was Vladikazkav and moved later to Tamir Khan Shura, which is about two hours east of the current capital of Grozny. The Republic was de jure recognized by the Ottoman Empire, Germany, the Azerbaijan Democratic Republic, Armenia, the Democratic Republic of Georgia, Ukraine, Bulgaria, Belarus, Latvia, Estonia, France, Finland, who had also just broken away. United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, United States, Italy, Austria-Hungary, Poland, Don Republic, Japan, and the Kuban People's Republic. During the Russian Civil War, the Mountain Republic soldiers engaged in fierce clashes with the invading white troops of General Anton, or Anton Denikin and his volunteer army. The fighting ended in January 1920 when Denikin's army was completely defeated by the 11th Red Army. The advancing Red Army was at first greeted with red flags in the villages of the North Caucasus, but the promises of autonomous rule by the Bolsheviks went unrealized. This is also a commune theme. <laughs> um, all they want is independence, and the Russians are like, eh, how about no? <laughs> Anyways, and then every few years, the Chechens are like, how about yes, we have guns? And the Russians are like, how about no? We got more guns. We have more guns. <laughs> In January 1921, the Mountain Republic was occupied by the Red Army of Bolshevik Russia, and the government of the Republic was forced to flee the Caucasus. The Soviet Mountain Republic of the Russian SFSR was officially established. During the Soviet period, Chechnya and Ignushechia were combined to form the checheno ignish Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republic. Say that five times fast. Yeah. During the 1930s, Chechnya saw an influx of Ukrainians fleeing Holomodor and the famines that resulted from forced collectivization. Many of these Ukrainians settled in Chechen Ignush ASSR permanently and survived the famine. More than 50,000 Chechens and over 12,000 Ignush fought the Nazi invasion during World War II, fighting the Germans to a complete halt at the cities of Melgobek and Vladikavkaz. After the Germans had captured half the Caucasus in less than a month, um, yeah, that was pretty impressive, actually. During the war, though, there, were also, there was also an insurgency in Chechnya, which was an autonomous revolt against Soviet authorities in the ASSR. They were encouraged by Soviet losses in the winter war against Finland, and Chechen ex-communist Kazan Israelov and his brother Hussein established a guerrilla base in the mountains of southeastern Chechnya, where they worked to organize a unified guerrilla movement to prepare an armed insurrection against the Soviets. Early February 1940, the rebels had taken over several Ols, so fortified villages, in the Shatoysky district in Chechnya. They then defeated the NKVD's punitive detachments sent against them, taking their more modern weapons. Israelov described his position on why he chose to fight as, quote, I have decided to become the leader of a war of liberation of my own people. I understand all too well that not only in Checheno Ignush, but in all peoples of the Caucasus, it will be difficult to win freedom from the heavy yoke of red imperialism. But our fervent belief in justice and our faith in the support of the freedom-loving peoples of the Caucasus and of the entire world inspire me toward this deed. In your eyes, impertinent and pointless, but in my conviction, the sole correct historical step. The valiant Finns are now proving the great enslaver empire is powerless against a small but freedom-loving people. 
In the Caucasus, you will find your second Finland, and after us will follow other oppressed peoples. For 20 years now, the Soviet authorities have been fighting my people, aiming to destroy them by group by group. First the Kulaks, then the Mullahs, and the bandits, then the bourgeois nationalists. I am sure now that the real object of this war is the annihilation of our nation as a whole. That is why I have decided to assume the leadership of my people in their struggle, struggle for liberation. After the German invasion of the USSR in June 1941, the brothers convened 41 different meetings in the summer of 1941 to recruit local supporters under the name Provisional Popular Revolutionary Government of Chechen Ignushetia. And by the end of midsummer that year, they had over 5,000 guerrillas and at least 25,000 sympathizers organized into five military districts, encompassing Grozny, Gudermis, and Melgobek. In some areas, up to 80% of the men were involved in this insurrection. The Soviet used carpet bombing tactics, tactics against the revolutionaries, which mostly just resulted in losses primarily to the, primarily to the civilian population. Uh, this is also another theme in conflicts in Chechnya, uh, and also really every conflict the Russians are involved in, they just want to destroy you. Collateral damage isn't really a problem for them. Soviet bombing in the mountains over two different air raids targeted Chechen Ignush mountain villages in the spring of 1942, completely devastating several Uls and killing most of their inhabitants, including large numbers of elderly and children. By January 1942, Israelov had decided to extend the uprising from Chechens and Ignush to 11 of the dominant ethnic groups in the Caucasus by forming the Special Party of Caucasus Brothers, or the OKPB, with the aim of, quote, an armed struggle with Bolshevik barbarism and Russian despotism. Israelov also developed a code among guerrilla fighters to maintain order and discipline which stated, quote, brutally avenge the enemies for the blood of our native brothers, the best sons of the Caucasus, mercilessly annihilate Sokotsky, our secret agents, agents and other informants of the NKVD, categorically forbid guerrillas to spend the night in homes or villages without the security of reliable, reliable guards. The rebels waited for the German invasion, but the Germans failed to capture more than the ethnic Russian town of Malgobek and Ignushetia, and the relationship with the Germans was shaky at best. Israelov refused to cede control of his revolutionary movement to the Germans, and his continued insistence on German recognition of Chechen independence led the Germans to consider Israelov as unreliable and his plans as unrealistic. Ultimately, the Germans weren't really interested in granting people freedom. The Germans did manage some covert operations within Chechnya. They succeeded in, term in terms of sabotaging the Grozny oil fields, for instance, but largely the alliance between them and the Chechens was pretty weak. It floundered. It wasn't really anything. But there is a myth that the Chechens were sympathetic to the Nazi invasion because they hated the Russians so much. And while, again, there were maybe a few, uh, it's largely a false assertion. They did have contact with the Germans, but they had profound ideological differences between them. Neither side trusted each other, and the German courting of Cossacks also pissed off the Chechens because they hate them. <laughs> uh, so Merbek Sharapov, one of the leaders of the insurgency, gave the Os Ministerium sharp warning that, quote, if the liberation of the Caucasus meant only the exchange of one colonizer for, the, for another, the Caucasians would rather, it would consider this only a new stage in the National Liberation War. But this alliance never actually existing, though, Stalin and the Soviets saw an opportunity to rid themselves of the Caucasian people, because that was really ultimately their goal anyway. And this was just, fell into their lap. They were really good at getting rid of people, let's be real here. So Stalin saw an opportunity to rid himself of the Caucasian people, of which he kind of is one, because he was Georgian, but anyway, um, and take over their oil-rich lands. Near the end of the war in 1944, the Soviets began Operation Lentil, which was the forced deportation of Chechen and Ignish peoples from their homelands to the Kazakh SSR. The order was made by NKVD chief Lavrenti Beria, who we mentioned previously in our season on the Soviet Union, but going to talk about a bit more at length here and then eventually you'll find out where he lands on our fuckface power rankings because he is a piece of shit 
Um, anyway, <laughs> Operation Lentil had uh, been in the planning stages since at least October 1943. So even if the Chechens had never even remotely had contact with the Germans, it's pretty likely that they still would have been deported somehow. They would have just found a different excuse. Beria had complained to Stalin about the, quote, low levels of labor discipline among the Chechens, as well as the prevalence for, of banditry and terrorism, the failure of Chechens to join the Communist Party, and the confession of a German agent that he found a lot of support among the local Ignush. The Chechen Ignush Republic was never fully occupied by the Nazi army, but the repressions were officially justified by, quote, an armed resistance by Soviet, or to Soviet power. These charges of collaboration were never subsequently proven in any Soviet court, but the Soviets didn't really care about that. Other stated reasons were allegedly to, quote, diffuse ethnic tensions, to stabilize the political situation, or to punish people for acting against the Soviets in general. Which, I mean, there was a lot of that, I guess, in fairness, but still. In October 1943, Operation Lentil commenced when about 100,000 troops and operative workers were moved into Checheno Ignushechia, supposedly for mending roads and bridges. The soldiers even lived inside the homes of Chechens who considered them guests. On February 20th, 1944, Beria arrived in Grozny to supervise the operation. On February 23rd, Red Army Day, 1944, the operation began. The NKVD troops systematically went house to house to collect individuals where they were rounded up and imprisoned in Studebaker US-6 trucks before being packed into unheated and uninsulated freight cars. According to the correspondence from March 1944, at least 19,000 officers and 100,000 NKVD soldiers from all over the Soviet Union to implement the operation. Some 500 people were deported by accident, even though they were not Chechen or Yagnish. They just rounded them all up. The plan envisioned that 300,000 people were to be evicted from the lowland in the first three days, while in the following days, the remaining 150,000 people living in the mountain regions would be next. Resistance was often met with slaughter, and in one such instance in Kaibak, about 700 people were locked in a barn and burned to death by NKVD General Mikhail Gvesiani, who was praised for this action and promised a medal by Beria. So, again, this is why Beria is on the list. Many people from remote villages were executed on Ver Beria's verbal order that any Chechen or Ignish deemed untransportable should be liquidated on the spot. This meant the old, ill, and firm were either to be shot or left to starve in their beds. Soldiers would sometimes plunder the empty homes, and one eyewitness said, quote, They combed the huts to make sure no one was left behind. The soldier who came into the house did not, did not want to bend down, so he raked the hut with a burst from his submachine gun. Blood trickled from under the bench where a child was hiding. The mother screamed and hurled herself at the soldier. He shot her, too. Those left behind were shot. The bodies were covered with earth and sand carelessly. The shooting also had been careless, and people started wriggling out of the sand like worms. The NKVD men spent the whole night shooting them all over again. Those who protested or walked too slow were shot on the spot. One incident. NKVD soldiers climbed up Moisty, a high mountain, and found 60 villagers there. They were ordered to shoot them, but instead they shot into the air. The commander then ordered half the soldiers to join the villagers, and another platoon then shot all of them. 2016, quote, anti-Soviet people were arrested, and 20,000 weapons were confiscated in that operation. Throughout the North Caucasus, about 650,000 people were deported in 1943 and 1944 by the Soviet forces. 478, 479,000 were forcibly resettled in the Ardak, Exodus is what it's called. 387,229 Chechens and 91,250 Ignush. Or that's how that number breaks down, sorry. Uh, they were loaded into 180 special trains, about 40 to 45 persons in each car. A combined total of 14,200 freight cars, excuse me, and 1,000 flat cars were used for this mass forcible transfer between February 23rd to March 13, a rate of almost 350 freight cars per day. 
Tens of thousands of Kalmuks, Balkars, Meskhetian Turks, and Karachais were also deported from the region. I just butchered all those names. I'm sorry. Except Balkar. I'm pretty pop. I'm pretty confident on that one. <laughs> anyway, 40 to 50 percent of the deportees were children. Only Chechen and Ignish women married to non-Russian or non-punished peoples were spared from the deportation. Russian women married to Chechen or Ignish men, however, were subject to deportation unless they divorced. Their livestock was sent to collective farms in Ukraine, Stavropol, Stavropol Krai, Voronezh, and many of the animals perished from exhaustion along the way. Some 6,000 Chechens got stuck in the mountains of the uh, Galanjoy district due to snow, but this slowed the deportation only minimally. 333,739,000 people were evicted, 176,950 people of those were sent to trains already on the first day of the operation. Beria reported that there were only six cases of resistance, 842 were subject to isolation, while 94,741 were removed from their homes by 11 p.m. on the first day of the operation. People were only given 15 to 30 minutes to pack for the surprise transfer and were permitted to carry up to 500 kilograms of personal belongings on the trip. They were transported in cattle cars that were not appropriate for humans. There was no heating, running water, or electricity. The exiles endured pan epidemics such as typhus and mass hunger on their vo voyage to Central Asia, which lasted nearly a month. A witness who was seven years old at the time described the cars as being so packed there was no space to move. The exiles were only given food sporadically during the trip, and they did not stop for bathroom breaks, which forced the passengers to make holes in the floor. They did not know where they were going. The trains traveled almost 2,000 miles, 3,218 kilometers, and they discharged the people into desolate areas in Central Asia, where, which were devoid of shelters and food. 239,768 Chechens and 78,479 Ignush were sent to the Kazakh SSR, whereas 70,000 Chechens and 2,000 Ignush arrived in Kyrgyz SSR. Some smaller numbers of deportees were sent to Uzbek, Russian FSR, and Tajik SSR. Beria did not stop there, though. He ordered the NKVD to browse the entire USSR in search of any remaining members of the nation, not leaving a single one. That was a quote. An additional... 4,100 Chechens and Ignush were found in Dagestan, Azerbaijan, Georgia, Krasnodar Krai, Rostov, and Astrakhan Oblast. In Moscow, only two Chechens managed to avoid eviction. All Chechen and Ignush soldiers were discharged from the Red Army and sent to Central Asia as well. With the subsequent deportations, the number grew to a total of 493,269 people. Beria claimed a slightly higher number than this, and this ethnic cleansing operation existed within a culture of impunity. Many of the perpetrators involved in Operation Lentil were awarded the Suvorov First Class Prize for arresting and capturing Chechens and Ignush, as well as eight other, quote, punished peoples of the USSR. The Chechens were put into the regi regime of special settlements. There was no barbed wire, but any Chechen aged 16 or older had to report to the local NKVD officials each month. Those who tried to escape were sent to the gulags. The status of a special settler was supposed to be inherited by the children of exiles. Exiles were assigned the heaviest of tasks, such as constructing sites, mines, factories, and in the, most in the most hospitable places, and their only compensation was food coupons. There was punishment if they did not do the work assigned to them, and local authorities often acted hostile towards Chechens. There were cases of authorities beating the children of Chechens to death. At Krasnoyarsk, about 4,000 Chechens were assigned to forced labor camps. This, combined with malnutrition due to the negligence of authorities to provide enough food for the newly arrived exiles, led to very high death rates. They were not provided with adequate housing. As of September 1944, 5,000 out of 31,000 families in Kyrgyz SSR were provided with housing. One district prepared 18 apartments for 900 families. Some exiles had to live in unheated tents. 
Chechen children attended schools in the local language, not their own. Many deportees died on the way, and the extremely harsh environment of exile killed many more. The temperatures in Kazakh SSR would drop to minus 50 in the winter and could reach plus 50 in the summer. Food rations were fixed at only 116 grams of flour and 56 grams of grain per day for each person, which is even below the standards of captives at Auschwitz, who received 300 grams of bread a day. According to the official Soviet reports, 608,749 Chechens, Ignush, Karachev, Balkars, and and sorry, and Balkars were registered to exile or registered in exile in Central Asia in 1948. The NKVD gives this, gives this statistic of 144,704 people who died between 1944 and 1948 alone, a death rate of 23%. After the deportation, the Checheno Ignush ASSR was dissolved and transformed into Grozny Oblast, which included the Kizyarsky district, the Nowski rayon, and parts of it were given to North Ossetia, Georgian SSR, and Dagestan ASSR. Names of repressed nations were totally erased from all books and encyclopedias. By the next summer, a number of Chechen and Ignish place names were replaced with Russian ones, mosques were destroyed, and a massive campaign of burning numerous historical knock-language books and manuscripts was near complete. So it was not only just like a physical genocide, but also a cultural genocide. Their villages were razed to the ground, and their graveyards were bulldozed. With the native population gone, the Chechen region experienced a huge lack of skilled workers. The local oil production industry dropped more than 10 times in 1944 compared to 1943. On November 26, 1948, the Presidium of the USSR Supreme Soviet issued a decree which sentenced the deported nations to a permanent exile in those distant regions. Because of course they did. This decree was not only mandatory for Chechens and Ignush, but also for Crimean Tatars, Germans, Balkars, and Kalmyks. Really grateful my German family bailed on the Soviet Union, yeah. <laughs> bailed on Russia a long time ago. The settlers were not allowed to travel beyond the three kilometers of their new place of residence. Three kilometers. Good luck working. Um, Jesus, yeah. The authorities also prohibited any public mention or documentation of deportations and its murder. Thousands of historical Vinok, along with their origins, were lost when the Russians de destroyed the public and private library of the peoples of Chechnya. The Chechen settlers were target of various provocations in the Kazakh SSR. In December 1954, students in Elizavetinka taunted Chechens as traitors and betrayers of the motherland. In 1955, a worker in a coal mine engaged in a fight with a Chechen colleague in Ekebastus, and this escalated into a pogrom in which Russian hooligans even attacked a police station where sheltered, which sheltered the runaway Chechens. Meanwhile, Chechnya, in Chechnya, many refugees from the war from the Soviet Union were moved into the empty homes. This included Russians, Ukrainians, Avars, and Ossetians. By 1959, Russia comprised, or Russians comprised 49% of the Chechen Ignush ASSR. In 1953, the architects of the deportation died. Stalin died in March, and Beria and Kabulov were arrested in June and convicted on multiple charges, sentenced to death, and executed by December, which they deserved. Beria was literally <laughs> given a kangaroo court, yep. marched outside, and before he even made it out the door, he was shot in the head. Not going to say he didn't deserve it, though. Nope, he definitely did. These charges were unrelated to the deportations, though, because, meh, <laughs> the Russians didn't care. And they were merely a ploy to remove them from power, really. That was all it was. It was just trying to get rid of them. So instead of actually prosecuting them for real crimes, they just were like, we'll just prosecute you for nothing and then kill you anyway. Yeah. Again, not saying they didn't deserve it, but It's anyway. also shocking to hear that there were 49% Russian, ethnic Russians in Chechnya mm. by the end of that point. And then having mentioned that by 2020, there are 97.4% Chechens and mm -hmm. only 0.9% Russians. Is, yeah. It's just shocking. 
Hey. So you really hear the dysphoria mm-hmm. in those three separate. Yeah, and they're loyal to their homeland, so. So in 1953, like I mentioned, Stalin, Beria, and Kabilov died. Um, Khrushchev took over as leader and revoked the numerous deportations, even denouncing Stalin in doing so. In a secret speech in February 24, 1956, Khrushchev condemned the Stalinist deportations. Quote, Soviet Union is justly considered as a model of a multinational state because we have in practice assured the equality and friendship of all nations who live in our great fatherland. Okay. Sure. <laughs> sure. Okay, sure. <laughs> all the, quote, all the more monstrous are the acts whose initiator was Stalin and which are crude violations of basic Leninist principles of the nationality policy of the Soviet Union. We refer to the mass deportations from their native places of whole nations, together with communists and komsomols, without exception. Not like the strongest condemnation, but whatever. Yeah. Anyways, on June 16th, 1956, the Presidium of the USSR Supreme Soviet adopted a decree lifting the restrictions of the legal status of Chechens, Ignush, and Karachais in the special settlements. In January 1957, the Soviet Council of Ministers passed a decree allowing repressed nations to freely travel within the Soviet Union, therefore rehabilitating the Chechens and Ignush after their 13-year exile. During 1956 alone, 25 to 30,000 Chechens and Ignush returned home, some even carrying the bodies of their relatives. The Soviet government tried to give them autonomy inside Uzbekistan or to resettle them in other parts of the Caucasus, but the returnees were adamant that they returned to their homeland. Over 50,000 families returned in 1957. By 1959, Chechens and Ignush already comprised 41% of the Chechen Ignush ASSR. 58.2% of Chechens and 45.3% of Ignush Chechens returned to their native lands by that year. By 1970, this peaked with 82% of all Chechens and 72% of all Ignush being registered in the Chechen Ignush ASSR. By comparison, in 1926, the numbers were 91% for both. So it's still a drop, but it's at least better. The the way how quickly both of these, both of this exile and then return happened. Is actually like impressive. Yeah. Um, Some Chechens stayed in Kurdistan. Some Some were afraid of the long trip and others also just lacked the money to travel. Because, of course, they were allowed to return home, but they were given zero resources to do so. (laughs) When they returned to their homeland, though, they found that their farms and infrastructure had deteriorated. Some of the mountain regions were still a restricted zone for the returnees, which meant that they had to settle in the lowlands. Worse still, they found other people living in their homes and viewed other ethnicities, Russians, Ossetians, etc., with hostility. The massive number of Vyanaks who were coming back to the northern Caucasus took the locals by surprise. The Soviet government thus decided to temporarily halt the influx of returnees in 1957. Many of the returnees had sold their homes and belongings and quit their jobs in order to return. A renewed ethnic conflict between Chechens and Russians was also beginning. The Russians, angered by the issues over land ownership and job competition, rioted as early as 1958. The riot was sparked by a fight between a Russian sailor and an Ignush youngster over a girl in which the Russian was fatally injured. Over the next four days, Russians formed mobs and looted Vinok properties, seizing government buildings and demanding either a restoration of Grozny Oblast or a creation of a non-titular autonomy, re-deportation of the Chechens and Ignush, re-establishment of, quote, Russian power, mass search and disarming of Chechens and Ignush before Soviet law enforcement finally showed up and dispersed these rioters, who were, like, openly calling for ethnic cleansing, essentially. So basically, the Russians are just bitching because now the Chechens are home and are challenging them for their shit back um <laughs> and russian colonizers don't really like that i mean colonizers don't really like being challenged ever let's be honest just sorry imagine being the woman yeah that you was being fought <laughs> over and then resu- which resulted in all, all of this 
I mean, it was not in her like her fault in no, any way. No. But just imagine yeah. the perspective from her shoes. Definitely a mindfuck. Anyways, um, in 1958, the Chechen Ignush ASSR was officially restored by a decree from Moscow. But to its 1936 borders. So this led to losses of land for Chechnya and, and Ignushetia. But they were given other districts as, quote, compensation. This was mostly done to dissipate the demographic impact of the 419,000 Vinok returnees on the Russians who had moved there. So the Soviets were trying to, like, lessen the blow for the ethnic Russians who were living there because they didn't want to offend their own, I guess. Ethnic clashes continued into the 1960s. In 1965 alone, there were 16 such clashes, resulting in 185 injuries and 19 fatalities. Chechens were heavily dis disadvantaged when they returned home. There were no Chechen language schools, leading to a lack of education of the populace because they did not universally understand Russian. Chechen is like a similar language, but it's not the same. And the Russians definitely like had a very harsh policy of Russification and like in the republics, like you spoke Russian. These are this is a Russian place. Like we don't have time for your ethnic bullshit. Like this is Russian. So they, especially in Chechnya, they really really wanted to enforce that. So. Uh, there was lack of education, and the economy was divided into two spheres in which the Russians had all the jobs with higher salaries in the urban areas, and the Chechens didn't. Some men in the 60s would temporarily go to Siberia or Kazakhstan to work in order to finance their families because they had contacts from when they were in exile, and they could not make enough money in Chechnya because the Russians had all the good jobs. On paper, the Chechen Ignish Republic enjoyed the same privileges as other Soviet ASSRs, but in reality it had very little actual Chechens or Ignish representing its government, which was run by Russians. So... Yeah. <laughs> Despite being oil rich, the Chechen, Chechen Ignush ASSR remained the second poorest region of the entire USSR and has generally remained that way. The, the reason you hear us laughing over all the, all the time, because like having talked to like done a whole season on the USSR, particularly the fall of it, that by this point you just hear stuff that the rush, like the Soviets have done and you're just kind of like, yep, yep, that, that sounds, that sounds yeah, right. That's, yeah. yep. That tracks. <laughs> oh man well speaking of like our whole season which is actually about the fall the collapse of the ussr actually sparked a lot of fear within not with non-chechen peoples living within chechnya and tens of thousands fled the republic out of like fear of like well we're probably not going to be protected yeah. which was probably true because yeah i mean i think things were well things were in such disarray when the soviet union collapsed like there was definitely a lot of chaos so i think that it was probably a valid fear yeah and like i i just like i'm pretty sure this is this kind of peaked around the time of the coup attempt the republics really didn't matter at that point no at that point it would be they would be pulling people to moscow st petersburg they would deal with the republics later, essentially. Basically, yeah. But they were just pulling at the, the major Russian cities. Yeah. I'm. Uh, we need to talk about a certain gentleman named Zohar Jadayev. He was born in Yakoroy, Chechen Ignush, ASSR, on February 15th, 1944. He served in the Soviet Air Force starting in 1962 and was in the Soviet-Afghan War, where he was awarded the Order of the Red Star and the Order of the Red Banner for his service. He became the first Chechen to be named a general when he became Major General in 1987 and was given command of the 326th Heavy Bomber Aviation Division in Tartu, Estonia. 
This put him in command of long-range strategic bombers armed with nuclear warheads. During the Estonian calls for independence in 1989 to 1990, Judaev ignored orders to shut down the Estonian television stations and crack down on the Estonian parliament. He and the division were later recalled to Russia, and he resigned from the Soviet military. Judaev was actually looked rather fondly in Estonia because of this. And like a lot of Estonian, I don't know if it's politicians, but definitely a lot of Estonians were giving support to him later on in his role in this, as you'll, as we're, we're, we'll talk about later. He returned to Grozny and entered local politics. He became inspired to restore Chechen independence, which he felt would be possible as the Soviet republics were one by one declaring independence themselves. He was elected to the executive committee of an unrecognized opposition party known as the All-National Congress of the Chechen People, also known as the NCCHP. As the authorities in Moscow were too busy handling the collapse of the Union, the NCCHP sprung into action. On September 6, 1991, the party's parliamentary unit seized the Supreme Soviet, killing the local Grozny Communist Party leader, Vitaly Kutsenko. He was either thrown from a window or he fell trying to escape. It's one of those things depending on who you ask. And they also wounded several other Soviet officials. They dissolved the Chechen Ignush ASSR government and took over the TV and radio stations throughout Chechnya. Always <laughs> rule for re revolution number four, take over the TV and radio stations. <laughs> On September 14th, ethnic Chechen and Yeltsin ally Ruslan Kazbultov arrived in Grozny. He was the chair of the Russian Supreme Soviet at the time. He persuaded chairman of the Chechen Ignush Soviet, Doku Zav Zavgayev, and other members to resign their positions, abolish the Supreme Soviet, and establish a temporary council to lead while new parliamentary elections got underway. Instead, Jidayev organized elections for October 27th. The Supreme Soviet of the so of the Soviet Union published articles in Chechen declaring the elections illegal. 72 of the population disagreed and went ahead and voted in the elections. With 90.1% of the vote, Judaev was elected president of Chechnya. Yeltsin ordered Russian troops to Grozny to restore order in November. However, the troops were immediately surrounded at the airport and forced to withdraw. From what the sources I could find about this election, it was actually pretty legitimate yeah so take with that information what you will but yeah it was it was pretty legitimate chechnya acted under the de facto independence since yeltsin was forced to focus on other matters the continued mass exodus of non-chechens left the state lacking skilled workers resulting in a collapse of chechen industry which is an unfortunate side effect of everything that Lindsay just talked about is that Chechens were not given, like, it's not the fault of the Chechens at all. They were not given any, if like, little to, if any, opportunities to uh, expand their education and their careers. And they were given basically fuck all. Judaia focused on arming and reorganizing local militias to protect the people. However, this helped to arm local leaders who were clamoring for for power themselves. In March 1992, a group of militants attempted but failed to oust Jediyev in a coup. In response, 
Jijayev purged his party, dissolved the parliament, and adopted direct rule. By this point, the Treaty of Federation, which established the Russian Federation as we know it, was signed, freeing up Yeltsin to shift focus back to Chechnya. The Republic had large amounts of oil and natural gas deposits Russia desperately wanted, because that's what makes the world run right now, people. Russia began supporting anti-Jediev militias and protesters. They also began plotting a coup which involved disguising Russian mercenaries to help the anti-Jediev militias. In December 1993, the Chechen opposition organized into the Provisional Council of the Chechen Republic and openly asked Russia for aid. In 1994, Russia set up a blockade of Chechnya, ensuring nothing came out and all that was going in were arms and money to the anti-Jediev leaders. In response, Jediev declared a state of emergency and in an act of further defiance, Jediev declared the creation of the Chechen Republic of Ichkeria on January 14, 1994. Russia continued to secretly supply the Provisional Council, giving them equipment, money, and well-trained Russian mercenaries. This eventually culminated in two attacks on Grozny, one in October and another larger one on November 26th to 27th. Despite Russian support, both attacks were a massive failure and the Russian mercenaries who were captured were paraded on Chechen television. While these were supposed to be mercenaries, it has been claimed and is likely true, these were legitimate conscripted Russian soldiers. Outraged, Yeltsin issued an ultimatum calling Jediev to step down and return Chechnya to Russian authority. Jediev bluntly refused. Yeltsin sent in Russian troops to restore constitutional order to Chechnya through force. This is the beginning of the First Chechen War, as we know it. The plan was to have three convoys of troops to push onto Grozny from the west, north, and east. The capital would be softened up by airstrikes. It was believed the Russian superior firepower and equipment would lead to a quick victory. However, the Russians soon discover how rocky the terrain in Chechnya was, not helped by the deeply devoted people who would fight for their freedom at all costs. The Russian soldiers were mostly made up of undertrained conscripts who had never experienced war before. Jediev had planned for an invasion, setting up guerrilla operations throughout Chechnya. The entire way to Grozny, the convoys were under constant harassment from Chechen fighters. Furthermore, the aerial campaign against Grozny had resulted in the death of thousands of civilians. This further fueled the anger and hatred of the Russians. Now, I should point out that the aerial campaign was focused almost completely on Grozny, so these three columns that were just going in from every fucking where <laughs> were going in with no artillery support, no air support, nothing. They were on their own. After a month of fighting, Russian soldiers finally reached Grozny on New Year's Eve. APCs drove straight on into the city, only to be met with fierce resistance from Chechen fighters. The APC was again without air or infantry cover and were easily incapacitated or destroyed, often with all the troops inside. The first Russian armored column lost 105 out of 120 Russian tanks and APCs it had for the assault. By January 2nd, 400 tanks and APCs were destroyed in, the, in Grozny. Russian Spetsnaz troops wandered the city aimlessly without any idea where their objectives were, if there were even any, and had run out of food. After three days, they surrendered. 
This is fucking Spetsnaz. Yeah, they're like, man, we're, we're over it. After he was released from captivity, Russian lieutenant, a Russian lieutenant colonel was quoted as saying of the attack, quote, the only order was to go forward without explanations as to what they should do, what, where they should go, and whom they should capture, end quote. Eventually, the Russians pulled back to the edges of the city, and instead, an all-out bombing campaign began. As the rubble began to pile up and most of the city was destroyed, Chechen General Aslan Mashkadov ordered a retreat of the, from the city. Russian troops then moved in and claimed a quote-unquote victory in the Second Battle of Grozny. Over 2,000 Russian soldiers were killed with a further 500 missing. 4,670 were wounded, 62 tanks, and 163 APCs were destroyed. It should be. It is unknown how many Chechen fighters were killed, but over 27,000 civilians were killed, including an estimate 5,000 children. That is not to say the Chechen sides were not known for their brutality, because we are now about to learn about a certain person named Shamil Basayev. He was an ethnic Chechen born in 1965 and had a long family history of resistance to Russian rule. He served as a firefighter in the Soviet army before working on a state farm in Volgograd, which is at the, which is previously known as Stalingrad. He flunked out of the Moscow Engineering Institute of Land Management in 1988, and instead found work as a commuter as a computer salesperson of all people. <laughs> Was present at the 91 August coup attempt and stood in support of Yeltsin at the Russian White House. Following Chechen declaration of independence, Basayev and two others hijacked a Russian passenger plane after Russia declared a state of emergency. The situation was resolved peacefully with the hostages released and the hijackers free to return to Chechnya. There is frustratingly little information about this event, which really pissed me off because it seemed kind of important. But no. He first saw military action during the first Nagorno-Karabakh war where he fought in support of Azerbaijan. For those of you who don't know, the Nagorno-Karabakh War was a war between Armenia and Azerbaijan because there's a breakaway state within Azerbaijan that is mostly made up of ethnic Armenians. Uh, if you want to learn more, just learn about Stalin's divide and conquer techniques because this is he's kind of he's still responsible for a lot of fucked up situations going on in Russia and the former Soviet republics today. He later volunteered to fight in support of Abkhazia's independence from Georgia during the 1992-93 war. He was accused of leading war crimes against Georgians, including the beheading of civilians. He's also accused of creating what has been known as the Chechen tongue, in which the victim's throat is slit and their tongue is pulled out through the wound in their neck. I apologize for that image. Although... If you've seen the show Game of Thrones, you know that there's a scene where this exact same thing happens. I have no doubt Basayev was brut as a brutal man, because as you'll find out, he really was. But I have doubts that he actually invented this or even committed it. But and the reason why I doubt that he, I definitely doubt that he invented this is because I found that there's been written accounts of such an act being committed for centuries also just that kind of story sounds a lot like false propaganda kind of being perpetuated by the like to me it's the similar of like saying oh the the crusaders eat the dead bodies of muslims like you know what i mean yeah. <laughs> so but if i if he did commit it i 
will hold my hands up and admit that I'm wrong. But yeah, unfortunately, things are pretty shoddy about these kinds of... Yeah. But no doubt, he was a brutal man. He was a horrible man. When Grozny was invaded, Basayev returned to help in the defense. During the second siege, he led the Abkhaz battalion. The Thames were being fierce and brave. He and his troops were among the last of the Chechen fighters to abandon the city. So he held out as long as he possibly could. On June 3rd, 1995, an air raid on Basayev's hometown of Dishen Vedeno, I apologize if I'm pronouncing that wrong, killed his uncle, six children, and four women. Among the dead was Basayev's wife, his child, and his sister. The remaining 12 present were wounded. So he had a very personal mission in basically the remainder of his time. I have no doubt that that is the, that this is the actual event that pushed him over the edge. Going back to the Russians, because the Russians, of course, did their own bullshit. On April 1995, Russian Ministry of Internal Affairs, the, or the MVD, forces under the command of Anatoly Kulikov, entered the town of Samashki in southwest Chechnya. Their mission was to stamp out the local insurgents. They set up a siege surrounding the town and issued an ultimatum for the village to disarm. By this time, the organized branches of the Chechen forces had actually withdrawn, leaving the mostly civilians and a few unorganized resistance. The villagers handed over 11 automatic firearms to the Russians, but it be was believed there were over 250 in the village, although there's not much evidence to support this claim. Circumstances after are fuzzy, as they usually are, but on April 7th, MVD forces opened fire on unarmed civilians, mostly women, children, and seniors. Houses were also set on fire. One survivor named Vera Magomedova is quoted as saying, quote, They threw grenades into cellars. They wanted us to fight back. They kept screaming for us to give them the soldiers, but there were no soldiers here, not one. Show me the grave of one soldier who died in this town, end quote. Russian forces denied the Red Cross and other organizations access to Samashki following the massacre. Officially, around 100 civilians killed, while the Red Cross, Amnesty International, and Human Rights Watch list over 250 killed. Local elders say the death toll is near 300. On June 14th, Chechen militants led by Basayev snuck into the town of Budonovsk in, in Stavropol, Cray. They first seized the local police headquarters and city hall, hoisting the Chechen flag. Over the next few hours, the militants took random hostages from the street, from homes anywhere they can find someone. Nadezda Alekina, I apologize, I'm pronouncing your name wrong, is quoted as saying, quote, These guys were armed to the teeth and fired on whatever they wanted to. They saw a house they didn't like broke down the front gate, and shot out the windows. It didn't matter who they shot at. Kids, men, women, it was all the same. End quote. Somewhere between 1,500 and 1,800 hostages, with some estimated as high as 2,500, were rounded up and taken to the local hospital. The militants shot around 100 civilians who resisted or refused to go. They took the maternity ward hostage as well. The Chechens issued their demand for a ceasefire in the war with direct negotiations between Russian and Chechen governments. 
Yeltsin vowed to use whatever means necessary to ensure the hostages were freed. Yeah, whatever means necessary, but not the right means. After their demands for reporters be to be brought up to the hospital were not met, the Chechens killed a hostage at 8, p at 8 p.m. on the 15th. After reporters did not arrive at the second arranged time, a further five were murdered. Russian officials did not act following the killings, believing that they were actually just bluffs. On the third day of the crisis, security forces attempted to storm the hospital and end the siege. Most were from the NVD with Spetsnaz and FSB Alpha Group acting as advisors and support. The assault was a disaster, with many hostages killed during the firefight. Both sides agreed to a local ceasefire, with the Chechens releasing 227 hostages, while the security forces managed to only rescue 61. Two more assault attempts followed only hours later, resulting in further casualties and no gains. Dr. Nikolai Karamazov was quoted as saying, There was blood everywhere, and no place to get help. I had to work at gunpoint. They almost shot me twice because I didn't treat the militants first, but those who needed help most. Those with gunshot wounds, with blood coming out from their tourniquets. Karamazov was actually spared being executed when, Bezaya, when Bezaev's deputy intervened. Finally, Russian PM Viktor Chernomydrin brokered a deal with the terrorists. He agreed to halt military action in Chechnya in exchange for the release of the remaining hostages. Once all hostages were released, Basayev and the remaining terrorists were granted free transport back to Chechen territory. Furthermore, peace talks would begin between Russian and Chechen governments. The deal went ahead on June 20th with Basayev and his men using the freed hostages as human shields in case the Russians went back on their words. They didn't, and the men were transported back to Chechnya. Officially, 129 civilians died, 105 of them at the hospital. 415 were injured, of whom 18 did not survive their wounds. 11 police officers and 14 soldiers were killed. Around 160 buildings in the town suffered damage or were destroyed. Only 11 terrorists were killed, while one remains missing. The decision to allow the terrorists safe passage caused outrage amongst the survivors and Russians in general because, duh, the general consensus was the Russian government mishandled the situation, resulting in the deaths of many hostages. Also, again, duh. Two of the hostage takers were later arrested and sentenced to prison in December 2017, one for only 13 years and the other for 15 years. A temporary ceasefire was called to start the quote-unquote peace negotiations. In reality, it was just a used by both sides to regroup and or reorganize until fighting started again. Another person we have to learn about, apologies, Ahmad Kadyrov. He is a Chechen cleric, originally from Kazakhstan, and his, as his family had been expelled during the Stalinist era. He studied Islam throughout his youth and later founded the Islam Institute in Kircholoy. During the war, he was a supporter of Jadayev and the Chechen independence. His close connection to Jadayev would lead him to being named the Chief Mufti of Chechnya, which is an Islamic jurist with the ability to issue non-binding fatwas. Kadyrov declared the conflict to be a holy war against Russia, declaring a jihad and urging foreign fighters to come to Chechnya's aid. Somewhere between 500 and 700 foreign Mujahideen volunteers 
flocked to Chechnya to fight, and rich supporters sent millions of dollars in aid to the Chechen government. Excuse me. The foreign fighters were led by Ibn al-Khattab of Saudi Arabia. Furthermore, Chechnya was supported by members of the Ukrainian nationalist organization, Ukrainian National Assembly, Ukrainian People's Self-Defense. On January 16, 1996, five Turkish nationals born in the Caucasus, two Chechens, and one Abkhaz national hijacked a passenger ferry, the MV Avrazaya, at the port of Trabzon, Turkey. Around 220 were taken hostage. The leader of the hijacking was a close friend of Bazaev and he lo and had lost his fiance in the Russian raid on Garazny. The hijackers threatened to blow up the ship unless Russian forces withdrew from Chechnya. They also demanded to be allowed to hold a news conference in Istanbul. Turkish authorities quickly established negotiations with the hijackers. The Russian government demanded Turkey use force to end the crisis, but Turkey outright refused. Turkish PM Tanzu Siller denied the request for a news conference saying, quote, There was no bargaining. We told them there was no way they could get away with this kind of thing, end quote. Furthermore, the incident was widely criticized by none other than Judayev, who said through an emissary, quote, I told them this is not our business, especially not in Turkey. It is not the way to help Chechnya. The people of Turkey are supporting us, so it's a shame to spoil it, end quote. After three days, the ship anchored in the north entrance of the Bosphorus, Four of the hijackers tossed their weapons and explosives into the sea and surrendered without further incident. The remaining militants attempted to disguise themselves as hostages, but they were identified and arrested. Thirteen were wounded, mostly from illness, and no one was killed. In another incident, Chechen sympathizers hijacked a Cypriot plane bound for Germany in an attempt to bring che attention to the Chechen cause. This, too, was resolved peacefully, and once again, there is very little information on this plane hijacking, which was very annoying. By February 1996, Yeltsin was desperately looking for a victory in the conflict. He was seeking re-election and the conflict was not helping his opinion, poll opinion polls of him. In fact, it looked like the communist leader was going to win the election that year. <laughs> so imagine that. On April 21st, 1996, Jediev was using a satellite phone when the call was intercepted by Russian ELINT aircraft. At this time, Jediev is believed to have been speaking with a member of the Russian Duma about establishing peace talks with Yeltsin. Before the call ended, Jediev's location was struck by a laser-guided missile, which locked onto the phone signal. To be sure he was dead, a second missile was also launched on the site. Jediev was dead. Basayev announced his death on Chechen TV, and Yeltsin used Jediev's death as the propaganda tool he needed declaring a Russian victory on May 28th, and he went on to win the 1996 presidential election, although kind of barely. It was very much hit or miss yeah. for a while. Um, but that's what you do. You want to win the election, uh, kill a certain enemy. Usually works. <laughs> yeah. Acting Chechen president Zelmikhan Yandarbayev signed a temporary ceasefire with Russia as peace negotiations were actually legitimately prepared. Unfortunately for everyone involved, the Chechen military and insurgents only had their will to fight fueled further by Judaev because he basically he was now a martyr to the Chechen cause. 
Under the leadership of Aslan Mashkadov and Basayev, a combined 3,000 fighters organized and prepared an assault on Grozny throughout the summer. On August 6th, Basayev led between 1,500 and 3,000 troops to bypass the Russian forces surrounding Grozny and enter the city. They succeeded in besieging the 12,000 Russian soldiers within the city itself. When the 276th Motor Rifle Regiment attempted to break the siege, Chechen fighters inflicted up to 900 casualties. Chechen fighters rounded up suspected collaborators and executed them, 200 in total. Out of 30 officers of the Chechen OMON, Special Police Force, only one survived. They were executed despite promise of free passage if they surrendered. Of course, they surrendered and were promptly shot. That often happens. Yeah. This is not, a, a, there's no good sides in this war. I'm going to just say this right now. I mean, it's most wars are war. kind of like that. Yeah, but this is absolutely a war of shitty people on all sides. Yeah. I mean, Jediev. There's a few decent people. Like he's Mash, a, I Mash, wouldn't say he's, he's not a saint, obviously. But he was okay. he's all right, though. I would say, like, uh, Mashkadov as well was like, yeah, he, uh, he was. He, he was. Eh. He was a pushover. Yeah. you'll find out a, a way 100%, later. Hundred percent. But that. at least he wasn't. He wasn't as far as like on the scale of like awfulness. He wasn't quite as bad as like many. No, he wasn't like as the extremist. In exactly. Yeah. So yeah, by the end of the first week of fighting, Chechen forces amassed somewhere around seven thousand forces from deserting pro-Russian Chechen forces. Civilians and other militants from outside the city. There's a lot. Of, there's also a lot of. I'll fight for the winning side kind of moments here. <laughs> On April 19th, the Russians demanded the Chechens withdraw from the city or face bombardment. Panicked civilians attempted to flee the city, but many were fired upon by Russian soldiers and killed. Russian journalists from ORT, Ramzan Kadziev, was killed in the skirmish. Uh, the ORT is the state-run uh T- television station for those of you who don't know i know some people think it's russia today but it's not the russian began the russians began airstrikes and artillery bombardment on the city the next day the same day as the airstrikes began russian general alexander Le- lebed returned to chechnya and ordered his forces to cease fire with the help of the organization for security and cooperation in europe he successfully got the Chechen leadership to agree. On August 22nd, all Russian forces began to withdraw from Chechnya. This resulted in what is known as the Kazav-Yurt Accord. A joint, it was a joint Russian-Chechen task force. Well, it was it was a peace it was a peace deal brokered uh, between them, and part of it, uh, a joint Russian-Chechen task force was set up to crack down on looting in Grozny because banditry had actually skyrocketed at the time which is something that happens when a area is completely war-torn and destroyed people really no i i don't um there are definitely bandits that were like just trying to get as much shit as they could to to um to uh pester certainly there were many good people out of the like good people out of their money but most of these people were just starving cold yeah I'm, I'm just saying, like, even, yeah, even the bad ones, it's like, I understand why they do it. I yeah. don't agree necessarily, but I get it. <laughs> yeah, but the, most, of the, most of these, like, quote-unquote bandits that they're talking about are yeah. people literally just trying to survive. All the federal forces will withdraw from Chechnya by December 31st, 1996. 
And on May 12, 1997, Yeltsin and Mashkov, who by now was the new president of the independent Chechnya, signed the official peace treaty at the Kremlin in Moscow. Chechnya was quote-unquote independent. <laughs> it's a weird um, Schrodinger's independence kind of thing. It was and it wasn't. Schrodinger's independence. Like it acted <laughs> a good very, way to put it. It acted very much independent and whatnot, but I don't even think Russia actually recognized it. Yeah. With the withdrawal of Russian forces, crime skyrocketed in Chechnya as the government had little control outside of Grozny. In December, six Red Cross workers were killed by militias, and after, as a result, most foreign aid organizations left Chechnya. In January 1997, Mashkidov was elected president in the, what foreign observers called a free and fair election. By this point, Mashkidov, despite his strict belief in secularism, declared Chechnya to be an Islamic republic due to pressure from religious figures and Islamic fighters, including Basayev and his followers. Because by this point, there are a lot of foreign mujahideen in the country, and uh, the extremists were the ones being armed by foreign powers. So Mashkadov didn't really have a lot of choice, but that's why I call him a pushover. Uh, for much of his presidency, Mashkadov desperately tried to stamp out growing Wahhabism and other fundamentalist teachings brought into Chechnya by Basayev and foreign Mujahideen. Mahab Wahhabism is what is practiced in Saudi Arabia, by the way. This led to a split in Chechen politics between secular nationalists led by Mashkadov and Islamic fundamentalists like Basayev. Through the latter years of the 90s, Mashkadov continued to lose power to the Islamists and was even forced to introduce Sharia law in Chechnya. Mashkadov also clashed with his VP, Valka Arzanov. The latter supported the Wahhabi forces, even helping them escape annihilation by Mashkadov's forces. Arsenov declared his support for Al-Qaeda and other fundamentalist forces when they were attacked by the United States in Afghanistan and Sudan. Eventually, Arsenov defected to the Chechen opposition in December 1998. Because, yeah, of course, Al-Qaeda is involved in this. Like, Al-Qaeda just is one of those organizations that, like, fucking jumped. Yeah. It's like, um, if you said, we're socialists, we hate the United States, the Russians would just throw money and arms at you. Um, Al-Qaeda, like you say, yeah, we're, uh, we believe in Sharia law. We hate the United States. We hate everything you hate. The Al-Qaeda will be like, we're going to send fighters for you. Maybe, we, we got maybe, you. Maybe your local organization can uh, become part of Al-Qaeda. We got you. Yeah. <laughs> There's another group we'll talk about that is exactly. Have you heard thing. the good word about Al-Qaeda? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Al-Qaeda just shows up on your doorstep. Have you heard the news? Oh my God. Could you fucking imagine? <laughs> That'd be weird. I mean, I prefer it if that's what they were actually like, other than the pieces of shit that they are. Right. Yeah, me too. Also, be prepared to hear a lot about Al-Qaeda in the next couple of episodes. Yeah. So this one and the next one. So anyways, uh, a quick little important figure to mention here before we move into the next uh, phase of this war, because the end of the first, first Chechen war was quite humiliating for the Russians, um, and particularly current Russian president, Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. A little background, he was born in St. Petersburg in 1952, but he came of age during the conservative rule of Leonid Brezhnev, who we talked at length about in our third season. Um, 
Putin's father held Communist Party membership and was a foreman in a metal factory. Uh, he survived being wounded on the Russian front during World War II, while his mother nearly starved to death during the 900-day siege of Leningrad. So Putin really had a uh, storybook-like storybook-like life for for Soviet politics and Russian politics. Yeah, it's kind of similar to you remember how kind of storybook Saddam Hussein's 100%. upbringing was. Yeah. yeah, you know, Putin grew up passionate about uh, Russian martial arts sambo. And he loved spies. He'd seen movies about KGB, and he became interested. Um, he was recruited when he was in university, and then eventually he enrolled in KGB intelligence academies, and he was posted to Dresden, Germany, or East Germany, in 1985. Dresden wasn't really a highly rated posting like Berlin, so Putin was kind of in a backwater, and didn't, I don't know, it was largely an undistinguished career there. He was responsible for carrying out routine work that actually resembled nothing like he thought the spies actually did you know he was a really classic case of seeing something in a movie being inspired by it and then you go do it and you're like well okay that's not what i thought this he, was he definitely watched too many james wands 100 percent um <laughs> well he watched soviet propaganda about the kgb but still <laughs> that style of movie thinking it'd be super exciting and great but the majority of his time was ultimately spent obtaining and analyzing information about the changing political landscape of the region and then sending that to moscow so he was an analyst really the most notable event of his time came in 1989 when communism in east germany dissolved and the berlin wall fell and our friend david hasselhoff was in was in berlin um <laughs> putin was frantically sending cables to moscow uh explaining the situation and moscow just wasn't really responding and that was kind of when putin knew that the soviet empire was falling apart <laughs> he was like i this is a crisis and i'm not getting a response so like clearly something's going on so in 1991 he retired uh as a lieutenant colonel when he returned to Russia, he renewed his friendship with his former professor, Anatoly Sobchak, who was soon to be mayor of Leningrad, or well, now St. Petersburg. In May 1990, he was appointed to be advisor on international affairs to the mayor of Leningrad. By, 1991, or that, or sorry, by June 1991, he had become the head of the Committee for External Relations to the mayor's office, with responsibility for promoting international relations and foreign investments and registering business ventures. Within a year, he was under investigation by the City Legislative Council, led by Maria Salve, uh, it was concluded that he had understated prices and permitted the export of metals valued at $93 million in exchange for foreign food aid that never actually arrived. Good at his job. Yeah. Despite the recommendation that he be fired, he remained the head of the committee until 1996. He held several other political and governmental positions in St. Petersburg as well, because of course. The political system in Russia right after this, well, it didn't really... It did change, obviously, after the Soviet Union fell, but it was still relied heavily on patronage, so, like, appointing people and ultimately knowing people, and that's how you got roles. No qualifications necessary, just vibes, in some <laughs> cases. So, in March 1994, Putin was appointed as first deputy chairman of the government of St. Petersburg, and in May 1995, he organized the St. Petersburg branch of the pro-government Our Home Russia Political Party. He helped found the Our Home Russian Political Party, the... Liberal Party of Power founded by Prime Minister Viktor Chernomyrdin in 1995. He managed the legislative election campaign for that party, and from 1995 until June 1996, he was the leader of its St. Petersburg branch. In June 1996, Sobchak lost his re-election bid for mayor, and Putin, who had led his campaign, resigned from all his positions in the city administration, because I think he probably knew he wasn't going to have a job for much longer. He moved to Moscow and was appointed deputy chief of the presidential property management de department, headed by Pavel Borodin. In this role, he was responsible for the foreign property of the state and organized the transfer of the former assets of the Soviet Union and Communist Party to the Russian Federation. 
On March 26, 1997, President Boris Yeltsin appointed Putin deputy chief of the presidential staff, a post, post which he retained until May 1998 and chief of the main control directorate of the presidential property management department until June 1998. These departments have the longest fucking names. Yeah, they <sighs> tend to, don't they? Goddamn Russia. Why do you think they keep shortening their department names to like FSB and... <laughs> right. Um, on May 25th, 1998, Putin was appointed first deputy chief of the presidential staff for the regions in succession to Victoria Matina. And on July 15th, he was appointed head of the Commission for the Preparation of Agreements on the Delimitation of the Power of the Regions and head of the Federal Center attached to the President. Putin completed no such agreements, while his predecessor had reached some 46 agreements. When Putin became President, he cancelled all 46 of those previous agreements. Because he's petty like that. <laughs> petty is his middle name. Uh, it's not literally, but yeah. <laughs> Just means son of Vladimir. It's not that cool. Anyway, on July 25th, 1998, Yeltsin appointed Putin director of the Federal Security Service, or the FSB, the new primary intelligence agency of the Russian Federation, which was really just the KGB, but in new clothes. Because once you're a spy, you're always a spy. On August 9th, 1999, Putin was appointed one of three first deputy prime ministers, and later on that day was appointed acting prime minister of the government of the Russian Federation by President Yeltsin. Yeltsin also announced that he wanted to see Putin as his successor. Later on that same day, Putin agreed to run for the presidency. He campaigned on a platform that inspired confidence in many Russians. He vowed to restore order, rein in the breakaway republics in the southern part of the country, curtail the power of regional leaders and the oligarchs, and reform the security services. So I guess for context here, Russia was quite chaotic during this period. Yeltsin did an interesting job of leading the country. Let's just say he wasn't very competent. No. No. Good intentions. Not good at his job. Oh, well, at least he started with good intentions, I think. Anyways. That's questionable after that, but there was a lot of disarray. Uh, the mafia had absolutely taken over uh, the cities, oligarchs also. Uh, the oligarchs are a big reason Putin really got elected in the first place, so it's kind of funny that he campaigned against them, but anyway, I guess you're not just going to publicly vow to them. No. And obviously there was tension still in the Caucasus, especially after uh, the first war, so Putin was, you know, showing up to be like, hey... I got you guys. I'm going to fix these problems. Yeah, well, not only that, but, like, within the aftermath of the collapse, yeah. there's, like, how many fucking wars Well, around. yeah, absolutely. And, and then so... just general, like, poverty and and just, like, uncertainty. And it was, this was really only, like, less than five, well, it's like, less than ten years after the Soviet Union collapsed. It's, things are fresh. Yeah. And the transition to democracy and capitalism was extremely brutal and, like, hard in russia like it it was very sudden people lost everything in lots of cases it was not a quick and easy it wasn't it wasn't easy so by this point it's still sort of like gaining some traction and they're starting to less a little bit less chaotic but yeah so it makes sense that as someone who's you know strong and putin has a weird charisma about him he's very good at what he does i guess but yeah anyways he won with 50 53 percent of the vote because his campaign appealed to people he was unlike most politicians in that he showed little political ambition through his career. The first election he ever contested was for president. Political power sort of just fell into his lap, but when he needed to be, he showed an, showed an aptitude for politics, ultimately. His lack of experience was both seen as an asset, or was seen as an asset both by the Russian voters and in his ability to examine Russia's problems with a more dispassionate eye. So people trusted him more because he wasn't an established politician who just managed to like survive the transition from Soviet politics to Russian politics. Even though he'd been a cog in the security and forces machine, he, that, that did not matter to most people. 
Putin is a populist in a sense that he understands ordinary people and speaks their language, but he's also, also ultimately a bureaucrat. He was often described as an enigma, especially after his meteoric rise from nowhere, as both a, quote, closet liberal and a closet authoritarian, and both things are ultimately true, as seen in Russia today. Uh, his biography provided excellent material to fashion a political, political persona that Russian voters found particularly attractive. His parents were workers, they had fought in the war, you know, he had a pretty middle class, I guess. That's not really a thing but in Soviet Russia, but just kind of that, like, classic story of, like, you know, comes from a, a good, tough family, working family, rose through the ranks, etc. Served his time, etc. He is very much a Russian poster boy, isn't he? Yeah, he is. He even has the looks. Like, if you look at younger photos of him, you, like... You look at him and you're like, I've definitely seen some well, of the Well, and just looks- even the way he took after, like, <clears throat> Russian martial arts and things like that. Yeah. You know, like, he just, yeah, he's got a look about him, too. Yeah, but, yeah. but that, that look, he looks like someone who would, like, could yeah. be on a Rush, on, like, a Soviet propaganda photo. Does that yeah. make sense? No, totally. Um, his rise to the presidency was rapid and unexpected. Like, most of the world was kind of just like, wait, who? <laughs> who now? Huh, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> And why does Yeltsin want him to be his uh, successor? It was it was actually like a shock, for sure. To a lot of people, in Russia and abroad, everyone was kind of just like, Vladimir who? Yeah, he really just kind of appeared out of nowhere. Yeah. like Vladimir who now? Like, yeah. <laughs> who is this short guy? Like, I don't know who the fuck he is. But on the one hand, uh, part of his rise was somewhat predictable in that Yeltsin had created a political system held together by patronage. So like I mentioned... Uh, political succession was the prerogative of the incumbent leader so ultimately the prime minister position was used as a way to scout potential successors for the presidency because Yeltsin really feared a collapse of order and like power struggle and stuff like that which I think is fair because ultimately Russia's not really known for peaceful transfers of power especially up to this point so like Yeltsin's transfer of the presidency to Putin was really the first successful peaceful transfer of power in Russian history for the most part Outside of some of the yeah, czars. Well, I mean, I mean outside of czars, but I mean, obviously, that's just, like, succession, so, like, that's all that's built in. But even within the Soviet system, there was always fighting when it came to be picking the next leader. Yeah, but, uh, like, just think about this, people. Since Russia, like, in its current form has existed, there's been, quote-unquote, three presidents. Yeah. I say, quote-unquote, because I, I talk about that a little bit, but, yeah. Yeah, so I, I, I understand, I think, where Yeltsin's fears came from. But he also did believe in democracy and so wanted the elections to be legit. But anyway, and they were at that time, at least still. The legitimacy of the elections of Putin ever since then have definitely decreased. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> anyway, Putin also inherited a number of problems from Yeltsin's two terms in office, which included Chechnya. Putin campaigned in a policy of strength towards Chechnya and his role during the second war as prime minister helped his popularity. Uh, some even argue that Putin deliberately engineered a conflict to boost his electoral chances. If a war against communism had saved Yeltsin in 1996, then a war against terrorism could do the same for Putin. Uh, Chechnya was one of just many problems left unresolved by the Yeltsin presidency, and it was a problem at least partly of Yeltsin's own making. Um, A lot of these problems were, unfortunately. His acceptance of Dujayev and a failed invasion following a failed coup are definitely examples. Putin's ultimate goal, like every other Russian leader before him, was Chechen pacification, and he did not like the idea of Chechen independence. That was just a non-starter for him. The constant clashes with Chechen rebels and border incursions were irritating to the Russians, who ultimately were still feeling humiliated and burned from their retreating at the end of the First War. So within months of Putin's ascension to prime minister, he launched offensives in Chechnya and under the guise of counterterrorism. So the reason I kind of talked about Putin first, even though 
from a chronological standpoint, the war actually starts before he reaches the presidency, is just because the Chechnya is like it, it defines Putin in lots of ways. The second war in particular, because it's his war, but the first, like he felt really humiliated by the first war. In a way, it's, it's kind of a weird, not really weird analogy. Maybe it's like an, an extreme analogy, but it's a little bit like how Hitler felt after the First World War and what motivated him to then become who he was. Right. Obviously, a lot of racism and everything else and anti-Semitism, et cetera, involved there. But, like, it's kind of that similar thought of just being, like, humiliated, even though Putin wasn't really part of the government or any... He was part of the government, but he wasn't in charge of the war. He was still, like... I think he saw Yeltsin and saw that he could probably do a better job, and he wanted to be successful. And I think he also saw um, conquering Chechen or Chechnya as, like, yeah, a way to, um, like, boost his popularity, but it was ultimately just the goal because that had been Russia's goal since the 1500s was to pacify the Chechens ultimately so he just saw it as part of his mission and I also I think that there's an element with Putin of wanting to restore well there is obviously an element of wanting to restore like the glory of the former Soviet Union I don't I, I, I oscillate on how much I believe Putin wants to return to the Soviet days because I don't think he was necessarily always like pro-Soviet but I do think he misses the notion of Russia as a superpower. Yeah, and he definitely wants to bring the prestige e- exactly. of the Soviet era e- Exactly, back. yeah. And and that includes also controlling republics of prestige and also resource importance like Chechnya. Like, let's not forget the oil fields. This shit's important. Putin really relies on oil. Anyways, so that's kind of the context of his, like, political side, I guess, leading into the second... Chechen war it seems a little out of context but it is kind of important in understanding like him because he's a really big figure and the second war like really defines his still defines his presidency and Chechnya actually still defines him in general he like needs Chechnya to succeed and I'll kind of talk about it a little bit at the end but I do think that Chechnya is beginning to exploit that Mm. and uh it's kind of interesting but I'll talk about it later first we need to talk about the second Chechen war (laughs) Which, uh, so it seemed after the first Chechen war that Russian society and government had realized the ineffectiveness of colonial methods to solve ethno-political problems and understood the impossibility of forcing its will on an ethnic group whose majority was ready to, to defend itself with force. But nevertheless, Putin restarted military actions in Chechnya because that lesson was not learned um, in October of 1999. They called the action an operation for the neutralization of terrorism and the second Chechen war was born. It's kind of a theme basically now. It feels like every war since, like, the late 90s has been a war about fighting terrorism. Um, yeah, well, especially after which, 9-11. Yeah, but it's this happened before 9-11, but it's, I'm even talking about, like, the um, the Gulf War and things like yeah, that. Well, like, in a way, it's... And they were fighting terrorism. I just do find it interesting because in some cases, I think that, like, the, the term terrorism is kind of just being used in a loose way to be like, we're, ha- we're still having an ideological war like every yeah. other war, but we're just going to call it terrorism because it's easier to justify it. Well, yeah, it's what's replaced. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're, we're fighting the fear, we're fighting the terror of communism. It's, we're exactly. fighting the terror of terrorism, which, yeah, terrorism it's, is horrible, but... Yeah. But it's also kind of like a really like hilarious term to use in a sense because it's so, it could honestly mean any number of things. But like... People just associate it now with Islamic terrorism, but, like, there's a lot of other terrorist threats that we need to focus on, too. Anywho. The prelude to war took place in Dagestan when Bagaudin Magomedov, leader of the radical wing of Dagestani Wahhabis, 
fled with his followers to Chechnya, where they established ties with other Wahhabi leaders in Chechnya, such as Al-Khattab. A series of invasions by these rebels in from Chechnya into Dagestan took place throughout the interwar period, culminating in the 1997 attack on a federal military garrison. Other attacks targeted civilians and the Dagestani police. Dagestan has remained very much a part of Russia. It's, that's part of its importance here is because it actually is like a very important part of Russia still. Um, and always kind of remain that way. Like they didn't really. Yeah, they're they're kind of. Uh, they do have a small like they did have a small call for independence, yeah. but it was mostly tied in, like their their movements were tied in with Chechnya. Yeah, exactly. They and that's a much. It's a very small republic with a lot smaller population. So I think that probably is part of it. We don't really talk about Dagestan specifically in this episode, but that's just some context, I guess, into them because we mentioned them a million times. Yeah, in 1999, Megamedov made an appeal to the Islamic patriots of the Caucasus to take part in jihad and participate in the liberation of Dagestan and the Caucasus from the, quote, Russian colonial yoke. On August 7th, Shamil Basayev and Khatab officially launched an invasion into Dagestan with a group of roughly 1,500 to 2,000 armed militants consisting of Islamic rebels from Chechnya and Dagestan, including international Islamists. So, Al-Qaeda and some other people. A lot of Saudis came to fight. Khatab described himself as the military commander of the operation, while Basayev was the overall commander in the battlefield. They seized villages in the district of Sumadi and on the 10th of August announced the birth of the independent Islamic state of Dagestan and declared the war on the traitorous Dagestani government and and Russia's occupation units. Federal military response was slow and initially rather disorganized. As a result, all of the early resistance was undertaken by the Dagestani police, spontaneously organized citizen militias and individual Dagestani villagers. Basayev and Katab were not welcomed as liberators, as they had anticipated, and were seen as unwelcome religious fanatics. Instead of an anti-Russian uprising, a mass mobilization of volunteers formed in the border areas against them. So it was not really what they had in mind. It's kind of like what happened to Saddam in Iran, where he was like, hey, they're all going to help me. And then it was like, oh, they're not. Shit. <laughs> well, that plan They're going to love me. They're going to love me. No, they don't love me. They don't, they don't love, love me. me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be great. Oh, it's not going to be great. Okay. Yeah, it was, it's going to be awesome, narrator. It was not awesome. <laughs> Eventually, Russian airstrikes and artillery came into the fold, and the first use of aerially delivered fuel explosives, or FAEs, against populated areas occurred. These FAEs were known in Russia as vacuum bombs and signaled a serious escalation in the conflict. FAEs really hadn't been consistently used since Vietnam, in this, really, at this point. Uh, so it was kind of alarming. By mid-September 1999, the militants were rooted from the villages they had captured and pushed back into Chechnya. But before the dust had settled, a series of apartment block bombings took place across Russia and Dagestani vill- Russian and Dagestani towns. Five apartment bombings in all took place, with three attempts being prevented. The first bombing was at the Okotny Riyadh shopping mall in Moscow in August 1999, killing one and injuring 40. On September 2nd, an unknown person claimed the bombing was committed by the Liberation Army of Dagestan, a militant organization. Two days later, a car bomb detonated outside a five-story apartment building in Dagestan near the border of Chechnya. The building housed Russian border guards and their families. 64 people were killed and 133 were injured. Another car bomb was found and defused in the same town. The defused bomb contained 5,966 pounds of explosives and was discovered in a parking lot surrounded by an army hospital and residential buildings. Five days later on the 9th, shortly after midnight local time, a bomb detonated on the ground floor of an apartment building in southeast Moscow. The explosive power was equivalent to 880 pounds of TNT. The nine-story building was destroyed, killing 106 people and injuring 249 others. The blast damaged 19 other buildings, and a total of 108 apartments were destroyed. 
President Yeltsin ordered the search of 30,000 residential buildings in Moscow for explosives and took personal control of the investigation of the blast. Prime Minister Putin declared September 13th a day of mourning for the victims. But the bomber had no time for that, and on the 13th, a large bomb exploded in, a, in the basement of an apartment block on Kashirskoy Highway in southern Moscow, about six kilometers from the place of the previous attack. This blast was the deadliest because it was built with brick, and 119 people were killed and 200 were injured. Brick just meant that it went everywhere, and so it, it was a bitch to get through. The eight-story building was leveled, littering the street with debris and throwing debris hundreds of meters around the blast site. A truck bomb exploded on September 16th outside a nine-story apartment complex in the southern city of Volgodonsk, killing 17 and injuring 69. Surrounding buildings were also damaged, and the blast took place 14 kilometers from a nuclear power plant. Putin signed a decree calling on law enforcement and other agencies to develop plans within three days to protect industry, transportation, communications, food processing centers, and nuclear com complexes. On September 22nd, at around 8.30 p.m., a resident in an apartment building in the city of Ryazan noticed two suspicious men who carried sacks into the basement from a car. While the license plate indicated that the car was registered in Moscow, a sheet of paper was taped over the last two digits and the phone number written on it implied that the car was local. The resident alerted the police, but the men were gone by the time they arrived. The police found sacks of white powder in the basement, each weighing 100 pounds, and a detonator and a timing device were found attached. The bomb squad disconnected the detonator and timer, and inhabitants of the building were evacuated. Residents of nearby buildings also fled their homes, and nearly 30,000 people spent the night in the street. Wow. Yeah. Police and rescue vehicles descended on the scene, and as many as 1,200 local police officers were put on alert. Rail stations and airports were surrounded, and roadblocks were set up on highways leaving the city. On September 23rd, Putin praised the vigilance of the residents of Ryazan and called for the air bombing of the Chechen city of Grozny in response to the terrorism acts. The same day, a telephone service employee in Ryazan tapped into a suspicious call to Moscow and overheard the instruction to leave one at a time. There are patrols everywhere. The called number was traced to a telephone exchange serving FSB offices. When taken in, the detainees provided FSB identification cards and were released on orders from Moscow. Initially, the position of the Russian government to Ryazan was that it was a real threat, but after the people who planted the bomb were identified as, as FSB, the official version changed to that of, quote, security training that was being carried out to test responses after the earlier blasts. Ryazan FSB reacted angrily, issuing a statement saying that they had not been informed. It came as a surprise to them. A criminal investigation into the wave of violence was completed in 2002, and it was concluded that they were organized by Akimez Gochoyev and ordered by Katab and Abu Omar al-Saif in retaliation for the Russian counteroffensive against their incursion into Dagestan. Some, including Alexander Litvinenko, who you might recognize that name because he was poisoned by Putin a few years ago, and secessionist Chechen authorities claimed that the 1999 bombings were false flag attacks coordinated by the FSB in order to win public support for a new full-scale war in Chechnya, which boosted the popularity of Putin and led to his election as president rather quickly. Regardless, the bombings were used to justify war, with Putin declaring that there is no border with Chechnya. In late August and early September, Russia mounted a massive aerial bombing campaign with the stated aim of wiping out militias who invaded Dagestan earlier that month. So, the airstrikes were reported to have forced at least 100,000 Chechens to flee their homes for safety, and the neighboring region of Ignushechia was reported to have appealed for UN aid to deal with the tens of thousands of refugees. On October 2nd, Russia's Ministry of Emergency Situations reported that 78,000 people had fled the airstrikes in Chechnya, most of them going to Ignushechia. By September 22nd, Deputy Interior Minister Igor Zubov and Russian troops had surrounded Chechnya and were prepared to retake the region. 
but the military planners were advising against a ground invasion because of the likelihood of heavy Russian casualties. The conflict entered a new phase on October 1st when Putin declared the authority of Aslan Mashkadov and his parliament illegitimate. He then ordered the land invasion of Chechnya, but only as far as the Terek River, which cuts off the northern third of Chechnya from the rest of the republic. Initially, he wanted to create a safe zone in the North Chechen plains, but eventually realized that that idea was pointless and impossible due to Chechnya's mountainous terrain. Eventually, Putin just accelerated a previous plan for a major crackdown on Chechnya that had been drawn up months earlier, and because now he had the cause. The Russian army moved relatively easily in the open spaces in northern Chechnya and reached the Terek River on October 5th. That same day, a Russian tank shell hit a bus filled with refugees, killing 11 civilians. Two days later, Russian planes dropped cluster bombs on a village and killed 35. On October 10th, Mashkadov outlined a peace plan offering a crackdown on renegade warlords, but the Russians rejected the offer. The Russians were in the door and they weren't leaving Chechnya without achieving their ultimate goal of Chechen pacification. Putin had a lot riding on that, including his presidential election. So Mashkadov also appealed to NATO to, for help, but failed because NATO was not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> um, a few days later, Russian forces crossed the Terek River and advanced in a two-pronged formation towards Grozny. They moved slow and in large numbers to avoid the same mistakes they made in the first war. They used a lot of artillery and airstrikes in an attempt to destroy Chechen defenses before the ground forces had to deal with them. Some 200,000 to 300,000 Chechen civilians, out of only 800,000 in the entire republic, fled for neighboring Russian republics in advance of the attacks. The Russians appeared to not take any chances with the Chechen population, though, setting up quote-unquote filtration camps in northern Chechnya for detaining suspe suspected members of bandit militias. On October 15th, Russian forces took control of a strategic ridge within artillery range of Grozny. In response, Mashkadov declared a Gazavat, or a holy war, to confront the approaching Russian army. The Russians began to shell Grozny, once again making it the most destroyed city in, on the planet. Literally, the most destroyed city on the planet. On October 21st, a Russian Scud ballistic missile strike on the Grozny marketplace killed more than 140 people, including women and children. Eight days later, Russian aircraft carried out a rocket attack on a large convoy of refugees headed to Ignushetia, killing at least 25 civilians, including Red Cross workers and journalists. By the end of November, Deputy Chief of Staff Valery Manilov said that the phase two of the Chechen campaign was about complete, and the third and final phase was about to begin. The aim of the third phase, according to Manilov, was to destroy bandit groups in the mountains. A few days later, Russian Defense Minister Igor Sergeyev said Russian forces might need up to three more months to complete their military campaign in Chechnya, while some generals said the offensive could be over by New Year's Day. Neither was exactly the case. On December 1st, after weeks of heavy fighting, the Russians under command of Major General Shamanov took control of Elkan Yurt, a village to the south of Grozny. The Chechen and Caucasian fighters inflicted heavy losses on the Russians, reportedly killing as many as 70 before retreating. They suffered heavy losses of their own, but inflicting damage on the Russians was ultimately just the goal for them. The same day, Chechen separatist forces began carrying out a series of counterattacks against federal troops in several villages, as well as the outskirts of Gudermis, the second biggest city in Chechnya. Chechen fighters in Argun, a town southeast of Grozny, put up some of the strongest resistance to Russian troops since the start of the offensive. Separatists in the town of Urus Martin employed the guerrilla tactics the Russians so feared and tr tried to avoid to resist the offensive there. By December 9th, the Russians were still bombarding the town, although Chechen commanders and their fighters had already left. They were so scared of the guerrilla warfare tactics that they just kept bombing. On December 4th, the commander of Russian forces in the North Caucasus, General Viktor Kazantsev, claimed that Grozny was fully blockaded by Russian troops. 
Russia finally captured the town of Shali, southeast of the capital, which was one of the last remaining separatist strongholds aside from Grozny itself. They started by capturing two bridges linking the town to the capital, and by the 11th of December had completely surrounded the town and were forcing separatists out. By mid-December, Russian forces were co concentrating their attacks in the southern parts of Chechnya and preparing to launch another offensive from Dagestan. The Russian bombardment of Grozny began in December, accompanied by the fight for neighboring settlements. The Russian bombardment of Grozny began in December, accompanied by the fight for neighboring settlements. They were much better prepared and more numerous in force than during the force sent to Grozny in the first war, and the tactics from both sides were different than the first. The Russian plan was to hold back tanks and APCs and subject the entrenched tensions in the city to an intense artillery barrage and aerial bombardment unlike anything seen in Europe since the Second World War. They would then engage them with relatively small groups of infantry who had been trained in urban warfare. Urban warfare is something that the Russians ultimately developed during World War II in Stalingrad. So, if any army is like equipped to deal with guerrilla warfare, you'd think it would be the Russians in some ways. But they're guerrilla... definitely equipped to deal with like urban, urban warfare. Yeah, but mountains, not, not mountains. So <laughs> Difficult terrain. Not yeah, their jam. I mean, there's not really a any country that I can think of that's developed a capability to deal with that. No. Mountains will always be natural protection. Mm -hmm. The Russians relied heavily on Tochka rockets and the vacuum bombs that I mentioned earlier. Eventually, these weapons wore down the Chechen fighters, both physically and psychologically. Airstrikes were used constantly to attack fighters hiding in basements and added a large amount of psychological pressure. When I say it's relentless, I mean relentless, like it was just constant, constant bombardment. The Russians met fierce resistance from Chechen rebel fighters, intimately familiar with their capital city and not willing to go down without a fight. The defenders had chosen to stay and ride out the Russian bombardment for the chance to meet them in their own streets for a fight. They used interconnected firing positions and maneuver warfare, meaning they had come prepared for the Russian assault, unlike the more reactive defenses that they mounted in 1994. Under the leadership of field commander Islamic Islambek Ismailov, Grozny was turned into a fortress city, digging hundreds of trenches and anti-tank ditches, built bunkers behind apartment buildings, laid landmines throughout the city, placed sniper nests on high-rise buildings, and prepared escape routes. So, they were ready this time. <laughs> Whole buildings were booby-trapped with the ground floor, with windows being boarded up or mined, which made it impossible for Russians to just walk into a building. The Chechens were poorly armored, but it worked to their advantage in some ways in terms of them being able to easily maneuver through the trenches to get between houses and sniper positions, engaging the Russians as they focused on the tops of buildings or windows. It took until mid-December until the Russians had any kind of foothold in Grozny. They met stiff resistance as they moved forward using a slow neighborhood-by-neighborhood -neighborhood advance with the fighting on a strategic hill overlooking the city. Both sides claimed that the other used chemical attacks, but there's no strong evidence of either. There were chemical smells and things like that within the city of Grozny, but it's generally agreed upon that that was just like remnants from a chemical factory, not really from yeah. chemical attacks. But again, it wouldn't really surprise me if either side used them. There's just no strong evidence that it was actually the case. The majority of the city's population fled following the missile attacks early in the war, which led the, left the streets largely deserted. But as many as 40,000 civilians who could not escape, so the elderly, poor, infirm, etc., remained trapped in their basements during the siege, suffering from the bombing, cold temperatures, and hunger. Russian forces besieging Grozny planned to attack the city with a heavy air and artillery bombardment, intending to level the city to the extent that there was nothing left to defend. In their minds, if there's nothing there, then they'll move on. On December 5th, Russian planes, who previously dropped bombs, dropped leaflets, which set a deadline urging Grozny residents to leave by any means possible by December 11th, quote, as persons who stay in the city will be considered terrorists and bandits and will be destroyed by artillery and aviation. There will be no further negotiations. 
It's a ruthless ultimatum. The Russian commanders prepared a safe corridor for those wishing to escape Grozny, but reports from the war zone suggested few people were using it when it was opened on December 11th. Refugees who did escape told stories of shelling and brutality. Russia put the number remaining in Grozny at 15,000, but a group of Chechen exiles in Geneva, Switzerland, confirmed other reports, estimating that the number was actually closer to 50,000 people. Russia eventually withdrew their ultimatum in the face of international outrage. The British Foreign Secretary said, quote, We condemn vigorously what Milosevic did in Kosovo, and we condemn vigorously what Chech Russia is doing in Chechnya. The bombardment of the city continued despite there being between 15,000 and 35,000 people left in the city. The early fighting was concentrated in the eastern outskirts of Grozny, with the reconnaissance teams entering the city to identify rebel positions. The Russian tactic appeared to be to draw fire, pull back, and then pound Chechen positions with artillery and rockets. Uh, by December 13th, Russia had seized control of Chechnya's main airport, and it was the main Russian military base during the first war, and it was also one of the first targets to be hit by warplanes at the start of Russia's involvement in the second. The next day, the uh, 100 Russian troops were killed when an armored, armored column was ambushed in Minutka Square. The Russian government vehemently denies the reports by AP and Reuters. This would not be the only time the numbers surrounding the number of Russians killed would be endlessly confusing because different generals and officials said different things. Nobody really wanted to claim deaths because it meant that they were failing and they were all terrified of public opinion switching on the war like it did in the first. And so it's just like a classic tactic of Russian military, I guess, not really wanting to claim defeat. Yeah. I mean, well, that's... Any, any military. Yeah. But anyway. On January 4th, Chechen fighters broke through Russian lines in two places in a series of counterattacks. Russian public support for the war was beginning to wane as it appeared the war was turning out to be just like the last one. The mounting casualties and the government's inability and or unwillingness to share accurate numbers in the tightly controlled media weighed on the public. But Russian artillery finally began to take its toll and large parts of Grozny were decimated in preparation for an all-out assault. On January 10th, Chechen forces launched a counteroffensive in support of the garrison in Grozny, briefly opening a new corridor, corridor to the capital. In coordinated attacks, the Chechens also managed to ambush a supply column on the Argon Gudermas Road near the village of Zelka, killing at least 26 Russians in what was the largest single-day death toll since the war had started in September. General Kazantsev blamed the heavy losses on mistakes by soft-hearted officials who had allowed the rebels to counterattack and declared that from now on, only boys under the age of 10 old men over the age of 60, and girls and women be considered refugees. Which is a pretty dangerous precedent. Yeah. By mid-January, tens of thousands of Russian soldiers had begun an advance on central Grozny from three directions. Several corridors and suburbs changed hands a number of times, and the fighting was very fierce. On January 26th, the Russian government admitted that 1,173 servicemen had been killed in Chechnya since the war had begun in October. Which is a pretty big admission. Eventually, the Chechens decided that resistance was futile. Their supply routes were routinely dis disrupted and ammunition was beginning to run low. They knew they couldn't win against Russian artillery in the city, so... Chechen rebel commanders decided on a desperate gamble to break through the three layers of Russian forces and into the mountains, where ultimately they thrived and have always th thrived. President Aslan Mashkadov had been evacuated earlier to secret headquarters somewhere in the south of Chechnya and about 1,000 to 1,500 fighters under the command of Ruslan Gelayev withdrew without orders, leaving the other rebels exposed. The main Chechen forces began to escape on the last day of January and first day of February during a winter storm, after a previous attempt to bribe their way out. Despite the disappearance of their reconnaissance men, the commanders decided they had to leave anyways. It's not really a good sign when your reconnaissance goes missing. No. <laughs> <laughs> Some 4,000, it's probably a sign. 
Some 4,000 Chechen rebel fighters and some civilians moving southwest were met with heavy artillery fire. The column of some 2,000 fighters, seven, several hundred non-combatants, and 50 Russian POWs entered a minefield between the city of Grozny and the village of Elkinkala. Russian forces ambushed them as they crossed the Sunza River and bombarded them. The Chechens pushed on through the minefield as they were unaware of it and lacked engineers anyways. Even if they knew the minefield was there, they couldn't do anything about it. A lot of Chechens were killed by either artillery or the mines they were stepping on, including several top Chechen commanders, Kunkar Pasha Izrapilov, Alecha Dudayev, and Islamic Ismailov were all killed. Uh, rebel forces said they lost about 400 fighters in the minefield at Alkankala, including 170 killed and 200 were maimed or wounded, including Shamil Basayev after he stepped on a mine. But he survived, at least. All in all, there were around 600 casualties during the escape, which Russian generals initially refused to admit happened. Putin's aide and the Russian government spokesman on Chechnya said that if the rebels had abandoned Grozny, quote, we would have told you. On February 3rd, the day after the breakout, the Russians began mopping up. Many crimes against civilians were committed, most notoriously being the Novia Oldi massacre, where at least 50 civilians were killed when the neighborhood was looted by special police troops. Or OMON, Oman, troops. On February 6th, the Russians were able to raise the Russian flag over the city, and Putin announced Grozny had been liberated. On February 21st, Russian forces held a military parade to mark the Defender of the Fatherland Day, which I, we used to be Red Army Day, I think and to symbolize the supposed final defeat of the Chechen rebels. Defense Minister Sergeyev said during the ceremony that the final phase of the operation to, quote, destroy bandit formations and terrorist groups that were trying to tear down Russia, quote, had been completed. That seems confident. Yeah. It's a little bit like Bush's mission accomplished banner. Yeah, I, I, that's <laughs> what I was going to use as an idea for when, or an analogy for when Yeltsin declared victory after they entered Grozny. That's kind of like, what, yeah, yeah, like same with Putin saying it's been liberated. It's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's no one there, but sure. Well, as you're about to find out, it's not over. Yeah. Exactly. The UN workers who entered the city with the first convoy of international aid discovered a, quote, devastated and still insecure wasteland littered with bodies. There were still 20, 21,000 civilians in Grozny, and the city's losses were never counted. Most of the corpses were cleared in 2000 and 2001, but one mass grave dating from the time of the battle was discovered in 2006 in the former Kirov Park area. In March, Russian troops allowed refugees to return to their destroyed city. Here, come back to this rubble. Enjoy! Yeah. Sorry for bombing the fuck out of you, but not sorry. Heavy fighting accompanied by massive shelling and bombing continued through the winter of, 20, or of 2000. In the mountainous south of Chechnya, particularly around Argun, Vireno, and Shtoy, where fighting involving Russian paratroopers had raged since 1999. On February 9th, 2000, a Russian tactical missile hit a crowd of people who had come to the local administration building in Shali, a town which previously had been declared a safe area to collect their pensions. The attack was a response to a report that a group of fighters had entered the town and the missile estimated to have killed 150 civilians and was followed by an attack by combat helicopters causing further casualties, because the Russians just like to add insult to injury. Yep. Human Rights Watch called on the Russians to stop using vacuum bombs, as they were concerned about the widespread and indiscriminate bombing. On February 18th, a Russian army transport helicopter was shot down in the south, killing 15 men aboard. This was a rare admission by Moscow of losses in the war. On February 29th, United Army Group Commander Gennady Troshev said that, quote, the counterterrorism operation in Chechnya is over. It will take a couple of weeks to longer to pick up the splinter groups now. 
Defense Minister Sergeyev evaluated the numerical strength of the separatists as between 2,000 and 2,500, quote, scattered across Chechnya. On the same day, a Russian paratroop company was attacked by Chechen and Arab fighters near the village of Uluskurt in Chechnya's southern lowlands, killing 84. In March, a group of more than 1,000 Chechen fighters, led by Ruslan Gulayev, pursued their withdrawal from, che- from Grozny, entered the village of Komsomolskoye in the Chechen foothills, and held off a full-scale Russian attack on the town for over two weeks. They suffered hundreds of casualties, while the Russians only admitted to more than 50 killed, which is definitely not accurate, but, you know. In April 2000, a 22-vehicle convoy carrying ammunition and other supplies to an airborne, airborne unit was ambushed by an estimated 80 to 100 bandits. According to General Troshev, according to the Russians, they only lost 15 men. Again, okay. Uh, soon after this, the Russians seized the last populated centers of the organized resistance. Another offensive against the remaining mountains was launched in December 2000. Ay, ay, uh, damn. Yeah. Well, at this point, the Chechen War has entered an insurgency, more than anything. Just really just not what you want if you're Russia. No, have you, uh, have you guys heard about this little thing called Afghanistan? Putin declared Chechnya's affairs would be controlled directly from Moscow in May 2000, and he appointed, uh, previously mentioned, Ahmad Kadyrov to head the interim government. While Kadyrov had originally supported Chechen's independence, he became disillusioned with the movement due to the influx of jihadi militants who flocked there during the Second War, and he was critical of their Wahhabist theology, which I just want to call him out on here because he was the one that declared it a jihad, and he's the reason why a shit ton of Mujahideen forces flock to the country, so kind of his fucking fault. Kudyrov was successful in gaining amnesty to former militia members who were in turn allowed to join the Chechen police and various Russian loyalist militias should they surrender. Kudyrov was actually later elected president of Chechnya in 2003. In June 2000, Chechen insurgents began using suicide bombings as their tactics to their campaign. The first instance was on June 6th, when two teenage insurgents, one of 117 and 116, drove an explosive lace truck into a barracks. The Russians claimed only the two bombers were killed, with five Russian soldiers injured, while the insurgents claim 27 were killed in total. Banditry was also a major issue in Chechnya. Groups posing as Chechen separatists would kidnap, take hostages, or hijack vehicles and hold them until townspeople could give enough money, and then they would just promptly disappear. A lot of opportunism in this war, once again. On October 23, 2002, a sold-out performance of the play North Ost was in progress and was in the middle of Act 2. Between 40 and 50 armed militants entered the theater, taking the audience and performers hostage, which numbered around 850 to 900 people. Members of the performance backstage escaped through an open window and contacted authorities. At first, the audience thought it was part of the play, uh, until one of the militants fired his weapon into the ceiling. The militants were part of what they referred to as the 29th Division and also declared they were a suicide squad. The female terrorists sat throughout various parts of the theater with IEDs strapped to themselves with further explosives in different parts of the buildings. This becomes a common tactic. The terrorists demanded all Russian forces to withdraw from Chechnya unconditionally within a week or they would start killing hostages. 
Police and soldiers surrounded the building with armored vehicles. The terrorists did release between 150 and 200 people who ranged from pregnant women, children, Muslims, foreign nationals, and persons who were experiencing medical emergencies or had serious medical conditions. The following day, a further five hostages are released. Sadly, a stretcher was wheeled out by rescue workers of the covered body of a woman who was shot and killed. The woman was Olga Romanova, a 26-year-old woman who had somehow managed to walk past the police barricades and into the building on her own accord at 1.30 a.m. She made a speech attempting to inspire the hostages to stand up to the hostage takers as they outnumbered them. After a few moments of stunned silence, the terrorist seized Romanova. Believing her to be an FSB agent, she was promptly shot and killed. Yeah, it's... There's a couple instances during this attack that became massive embarrassments for the people in command of the operation. The same day, Al Jazeera broadcasted statements issued by the hostage takers. They declared that they were, quote, more keen on dying than you are keen on living, end quote, which is a very terrifying thing to say. Each of us is willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of God and the independence of Chechnya, end quote. Interestingly enough, the hostages were allowed to use their cell phones to call their family. One phoned the authorities and pleaded with them not to storm the building, fearing they would be blown up. On the, on the 25th, negotiations were attempted between the Russians and terrorists. The terrorists demanded they be allowed to speak to a direct representative of Putin. Nikolai Petrushev, head of the FSB, stated he and Putin made an agreement to allow the terrorists safe passage should they release the hostages unharmed. The terrorists also agreed to permit a group of doctors from the Red Cross inside to provide the hostages with medicine, warm clothing, and food. Dr. Leonid Rochel noted the terrorists were not beating or making threats toward the hostages, and most of the hostages were relatively calm. Only a couple were in hysterics. Negotiations resulted in the terrorists agreeing to release the 75 foreign nationals held captive in the theater as long as the diplomatic representatives of these nationals were present. Fifteen Russians were released, eight of whom were children between 7 and 13. However, negotiations broke down shortly after and the foreign nationals were not released. Frustrated with the lack of progress, the terrorists announced they would start killing hostages at dawn the next day. As night fell, a man believed to be named Gennady Vlach broke through the police lines and entered the theater. He declared his son was among the hostages and begged to be allowed to see him. His son was actually not present, and sadly, Vlach was killed. Just after midnight, 30-year-old Denis, Denis Gribov rushed one of the female insurgents. Another terrorist shot at him, but missed, instead critically wounding Tamara Starkova and fatally wounding Pavel Zarkov. The two were allowed to leave the theater while Gribkov was led away and shot to death. Mashkadov, through one of his envoys, begged the terrorists to not take drastic action, stating representatives of Putin were to negotiate with the hostage takers the following day. After further attempts at negotiations broke down, Russian spetsnaz were given the green light to raid the theater. First, at 5 a.m., a chemical agent was pumped into the theater through the air system. At first, the terrorists and hostages believed there was a fire, but it soon became apparent it was gas. The chemical was aerosol anesthetic based on fentanyl. 
After, 20, after 30 minutes, when the effects of the gas took hold, most of the hostages and terrorists were unconscious. Spetsnaz stormed the building while terrorists donning gas masks filed wildly at the Russian positions. A few of the female terrorists attempted to run to detonate their, the explosives but passed out before they could. After a 30-minute gun battle, Russian soldiers finally breached into the theater and exchanged still-conscious terrorists in the auditorium. Most of the terrorists were killed in the exchange. Soldiers then one by one approached the female terrorists, most of whom had passed out, and shot them in the head to prevent them from potentially detonating the explosives. At 7 a.m., an evacuation of the theater began. Over 700 hostages were suffering the effects of the gas. They were brought out and laid into the foyer and the outside entrance. Medical workers were unprepared to treat persons suffering from gas effects, instead believing they would mostly be dealing with burns and gunshot wounds. The proper counter drug needed would have had to been administered immediately by medical personnel. Unfortunately, with the amount of people who were affected, and the disorganization of the operation, this was impossible. In total, 131 hostages died. As of today, there has been no investigation into the chemical attack. There's a documentary, I can't remember the name, but if I find it, I'll post it on Facebook, that talked about this. It's like a zero hour, I think, I think the episode is zero hour, it's called. And uh, one of the doctors who was there said, we are just injecting people with, um, with the counter agent and you would have to just act like you wouldn't know if someone had already been injected so there there potentially were people who were injected twice or three times so not only does that waste the counter agent but it also has devastating effects due to I believe overdose so you can imagine how awful a situation this was the actions of the terrorists shocked even Basayev, who publicly apologized and resigned from all his positions in the Chechen separatist government. In the aftermath, Putin canceled the removal of 80,000 troops from Chechnya and vowed to crack down hard on dissidents. Mashkadov attempted to enter peace talks, but he was immediately rejected. Putin was not fucking around this time. He was embarrassed and rightfully so pissed off. To this day, the chemical agent used has still not been positively identified. On the morning of February 6, 2004, rush hour traffic was in full force and the Moscow metro was full of commuters. At around 8.40 a.m., a bomb exploded in the, a subway car just outside of... Uh, bear with me, people. Atazavodskaya Station? Survivors had to limp and stagger through the dark and smoke-filled tunnels to safety. Police officers who happened to be in the car helped them escort to the outside. 41 people were killed and up to 120 were injured. The attack was blamed on Chechen separatists, though Chechen leadership denied any involvement. The bombing was organized and planned by a Ukrainian national named Nikolai Kipkeyev. One of the conspirators, Timbye Kudyev, worked in the Justice Ministry as a bailiff and was the one who provided the explosives. The bomber was killed in the blast. The bombing was committed just a day after the fourth anniversary of the Novi Aldi massacre, where OMON troops committed a mass murder, rape, and arson, which resulted in 82 deaths, mostly ethnic Chechens. It has been well theorized the bombing was re revenge-motivated. 
Following the bombing, Kiev wasn't satisfied with what he considered so few casualties and began plotting a second bombing for later that year. Meanwhile, conspirator Maxim Panarin planted several bombs at bus stops and in and around Moscow, which resulted in one death and nine injuries. On August 31st, a second bomb exploded out of Ritsikaya Station, killing 10 and wounding 50. The attack was carried out by a female suicide bomber accompanied by Kipkiev. He, too, died in the explosion. Panarin and Shayev were captured after a long manhunt, and both were sentenced to life imprisonment for their involvement. On May 9, 2004, officials of the Russian loyalist government in Chechnya were gathered at Grozny Stadium in observance of the Victory Day, the holiday to commemorate the defeat of Nazi Germany. Among those in attendance was Ahmed Kadyrov. At 10.35 a.m., a bomb planted under the VIP podium exploded in the middle of the day's cultural presentation. The blast tore through the dignitaries section, killing 10 and wounding 100. Among those killed were Chairman of the State Council, Kusian Izayev, and Reuters reporter Adlan Kazanov. The biggest blow to the Russian establishment was Kadyrov was also killed in the explosion. Basayev claimed his organization was responsible for the attack. It was another blow to Putin's leadership. Chechen Prime Minister Sergei Abramov was appointed president until new elections could take place. Another three explosive devices were found and disposed of safely. Two on the same day found nearby and a third found elsewhere within the stadium, hinting the attack was meant to be much larger and failed. On June 20th, Mashkadov declared tactics would be switched to an offensive war. On June 21st, Chechen separatists led by Basayev's Caucasian Front led to a raid into the neighboring Ignushetia. The first was in the city of Nazran, the former Ignush capital. Around 200 insurgents stormed the city in an overnight raid targeting government buildings, the NVD headquarters, and at SB border guard unit and local police. After five hours, the insurgents retreated, losing only two. The Russians suffered up to 60 killed and 51 wounded. Nearly 100 civilians were killed and 106 were wounded. Between July 12th and 13th, separatists, along with members of the Arab Mujahideen, raided the Chechen village of Afturi. They inflicted up to 50 kills before retreating. So they were doing the hit-and-run tactics that insurgents tend to do which is something the russians started experiencing in afghanistan inspired by the recent victories the chechens prepared another massive raid on august 21st up to 400 chechen fighters entered grozny and began digging in at various districts around the city they set up roadblocks and organized attacks on on polling stations preparing for the september's election Russian forces and Chechen police quickly organized the defense of the city, amounting to a total of 7,000 officers and soldiers. The fighting lasted until the next day, resulting in the deaths of 58 officers and 5 soldiers, while an estimated 50 militants were killed. Tragically, 13 civilians lost their lives as well. However, the Russians were victorious and pushed the militants back into the surrounding forces. Grozny remained well in Russian hands. It was clear the Russians would not let the city fall back into the separatist fold. They got it. They were going to hold it. God damn it. Mashkadov accepted responsibility for the raids. What I'm about to talk about is by far the worst atrocity committed 
in the entirety of the Chechen conflicts. On September 1st, in the town of Beslan, north of Sechia Alania, Basayev and his followers of Riyad Us Silian, which is an organization, entered the city. The day is known in Russia as First Bell, as it's the start of the Russian school year. During the First Bell ceremonies, attended by students and their parents, the terrorists began shooting in the air and rounding up the attendees into the school buildings. They took nearly 1,100 people hostage, 777 of whom were children. Russian soldiers, Spetsnaz, FSB, and OMON sold units surrounded the school. Meanwhile, the terrorists laced the school gym with IEDs and tripwires to deter any rescue attempts. The Russian government made a statement dedicating efforts to end the crisis peacefully and offered to open negotiations. However, it was later claimed by member of the Duma, Yuri Savelyev, the FSB had been preparing for an armed assault from the start. The same day, at a special meeting of the UNSC, the members demanded the release of the hostages unconditionally. President George W. Bush offered any support to Russia to help end the crisis. On the third day of the crisis, the terrorists announced that they would allow medics to approach and remove 20 bodies of those who had been killed inside the school. As the four medics approached, an explosion echoed from the building, and the terrorists opened fire, killing two of the medics. 22 seconds later, a second explosion was heard. It is unknown what caused the explosion, but there are several theories out there. North Ossetian Deputy Speaker Stanislav Kazayev has charged a Russian sniper shot a terrorist whose foot was on a dead man's switch, which then detonated the explosives. Sevlyev believes the explosives... The explosions were caused by rocket fire from the Russian side, while the official Russian report is that the terrorists detonated the explosive among the hostages to throw off the negotiators, and the terrorists had planned the entire crisis as a suicide attack. It is still unknown what the fuck happened. There's even belief that Russian FS, Russian spetsnaz were on the roof of the building, uh, set off a tripwire, and blew up the roof because part of the wall of the sports hall completely collapsed and members of the local militia opened fire. In the chaos, hundreds were killed and injured in the crossfire as the firefight lasted some time. In the end, 334 of the hostages were killed, 186 of whom were between the ages of 1 and 17, along with 10 civilians, over 10 special forces troops, and 31 terrorists. An entire generation of Beslan was killed in the tragedy. Russian authorities launched a mass crackdown on suspected terrorists, with over 10,000 people detained for not having proper documents in Moscow alone. So only that 10,000 is just Moscow. Basayev is a heartless fuck. But guess what? He gets his. Because fate would soon catch up with the madman. Many do in this game. Yeah. At first, well, it's not often that people get their comeuppance it's, it seems to be that way nowadays especially where you're just feeling so disheartened by all those horrible people not being able to just get away with all the horrific things that they do but not Basayev on June 10th 2006 reports came in Shamil Basayev was killed in Ek- Ekzevo Ignusetia 
At first, Russian authorities claimed he was killed as part of a special forces operation, with Russian FSB agents killing him via a remote control explosive hidden in his weapons cache. However, according to witnesses, they spotted several black cars enter an unfinished estate outside the city. Soon after they arrived, militants exited the woods and began placing boxes inside the cars, just prior to the explosion. It is now widely accepted Basayev mishandled the landmine, causing it to explode literally in his face, killing him and several other militants. So the first landmine didn't get him, but this one sure as fuck did. On March 8, 2005, Mashkadov was killed in a skirmish with FSB and Russian special forces in the village of Tolstoy Yurt. Official reports stated the Russian forces were attempting to arrest Mashkadov and was and he was accidentally killed in an explosion. It should be noted Putin awarded the medals to those responsible for the raid, so it's unknown if he was actually she wanted to arrest him or they were the whole plan was to kill him. Wouldn't surprise me if it, the plan was to kill him because there's a lot of mentality behind the behead the snake unfortunately in a, a lot of these cases uh, the snake is actually a hydra in 2007 what remained of the Ichkeria government merged with the remnants of the caucasus front to, into the caucasus emirate this group is directly connected with al-qaeda and the taliban the group has completely discarded ideas of democracy and secularism it follows it followed the Salafist jihadist ideology, seeking a separate Chechen state under Sharia law, as well as a pan, as well as within the pan-Islamist line. So, in April 2009, the Russian government announced an end to major counterterrorism operations in Chechnya. By this point, Russia had tightened its grip on power over the region. The Russian government also announced rebuilding of Chechnya would begin, with Grozny's core being modernized in a stunning way. I was saying to Lindsay while we were researching this because we were looking at photo like she she found this really great photo series that i think she should post after this is released but um you look at the photos of grozny like before this war and during this like after before and after this war and then you see grozny now and you're just like holy shit it's really stark because the city goes from literally just being a pile of like concrete and destroyed everything to a like well-built yeah palatial beautiful beautiful city like i think there are still some scars for sure but it oh, went I'm, from being completely destroyed to all of a sudden like a pretty nice capital city yeah, all things the told. downtown core itself at least yeah like they basically they it's it's a facade yeah oh yeah hiding the the real scars i mean it's easy to don't don't take this the wrong way. When it's I straight say out this. of the dictator's playbook. Yeah, but don't take this the wrong way when I say this. But it's easy to rebuild off of rubble. Oh yeah. Russia, the Russian government saw an opportunity and they wanted to hide as much as they could. So, but that doesn't mean that the insurgency was actually over. <laughs> because on March 29th, 2010, a train known as the Red Arrow 75 Years, which is a pretty interesting name for a subway car, was approaching the. Lubyanka Station in central Moscow. This station is located next to the FSB headquarters. Lubyanka Prison. Yep. Just before 8 a.m. during morning rush hour, a bomb on the train exploded, killing 26 people. A half hour later, a second bomb exploded at the Park Kulturi Station, which is on the same line, the the red line, number one. In I've Mos on that line. 
Oh, it's the main line, I guess. I've, I've yeah. traveled around like the Moscow Metro a lot, yeah. That is the main, like, most so, yeah. used one, right? Yeah. Red and blue, I think. Yeah. Uh, which is, but this this time the station is located in Moscow Southwest, killing fourteen. So it's outside of the city center. One hundred and two were injured in the explosion. A New York Times article theorized the bombings were meant to, as a provocation, a means to create perceived flaws in Putin's security policies. Russia at the time was under the leadership of Dmitry Medvedev, a Putin protege. The attacks occurred around the times he advocated for liberalization of the government and improving democratic institutions to include more political pluralism. Leadership of the Caucasus Emirate claimed responsibility for the attack in a video message posted online. The man in the video claimed more attacks would come as they aimed to bring the war to Russia itself. The, the self-claimed mastermind is suspected to have helped lead the Beslan attack as well. Two days following the attack and up to April 9th, or April 5th, a series of bombings occurred in the Dagestan Republic. On October 21st, 2013, a bomb exploded on a bus in Volgograd. The bombing was a suicide attack committed by two Chechen sympathizers from Dagestan. On the night between December 29th and 30th, two separate bombings occurred in Volgograd. The first exploded at around 12.45 at Volgograd 1 station, the largest in the city. 18 people were killed when the blast ripped through the front entrance next to the metal detectors. The next morning, at 8.30 a.m., a second bomb detonated on a trolley bus, killing 16. A total of 85 were injured. On January 14, 2014, members of the Vilyata Dagestan, a subgroup of the Caucasus Emirate, claimed responsibility for the attack. It even showed the two suspected bombers strapping the explosives to themselves. On Halloween 2015, Metrojet Flight 9268, en route to St. Petersburg from Sharim El Sheikh Airport in Egypt, exploded over the northern Sinai, killing all on board. Daesh's Sinai branch, for those of you who don't know who Daesh is, it's what I refer to ISIS as because they don't like when you call them that very much, so I'm going to call them by what they least like to be called. So Daesh's Sinai branch claimed responsibility for the attack. However, to this day, the cause of the crash is disputed. Some claim it was a bomb or missile attack, while others believe it was mechanical related. The official statement says it was brought down by terrorism. It is Russia's deadliest airline disaster and the deadliest in Egypt to occur on Egyptian territory. It has also been suspected the bombing was partially motivated by Chechen separatist sympathies. It was around the same time members of the Caucasus Emirate broke with the group and pledged allegiance to Daesh, creating the so-called, quote, Caucasus province, end quote. Starting in 2016, Daesh had made direct threats against Russia for its intervention in the Syrian civil war, pledging to burn the country. On April 3rd, 2017, Putin was on official visit to St. Petersburg. The same day, a train traveling between Sanya... Sanaya, Polshad, and Technological Institute stations was rocked by a 300-gram nail bomb. All metro stations were closed following the attack, and a second device was found and defused. 15 people were killed, and a further 64 were injured. The perpetrator also died in the explosion. Responsibility was claimed by the so-called Imam Shamil Battalion, part of Daesh's forces in the Caucasus. 
since that time, most of the insurgents have now answer, uh, quote unquote answered the call to various different organizations in Syria, which include uh, forces joining Daesh's side, uh, but also Al-Qaeda's uh, Al-Nusra Front and other Islamic forces not affiliated with either Al-Qaeda or Daesh. So pretty much since then, the kind of insurgencies in Chechnya have actually really died down because, well, because there's no fighters left. Basically, I guess it's like, well, this is kind of like the the instigators behind this are like, well, this is kind of a lost cause now. Let's move on to, oh, Syria. Let's move on to Syria. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's, I, I was going to talk a bit more about it, but really there's not much to talk about because yeah. they've just gone to Syria. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So, as far as Chechnya goes today... It's currently led by Ramzan Kadyrov, son of Ahmad Kadyrov, who Jonah talked about a little bit earlier here. Um, when Ahmad was assassinated, Ramzan was the leader of a pro-Moscow militia known as Kadyrovtsi, which Kadyrovtsi, I can't remember. And anyways, basically he was functioning as Chechnya's de facto ruler anyway. He was too young to technically become president because you can't become president if you're under the age of 30, I think, in Chechnya. And uh, so in February 2007, he was finally old enough and Putin approved him as the replacement for Alu Olkanov, who was leading the country. Ramzan had helped lead Chechnya to some semblance of peace and prosperity with an iron fist and Putin's wallet. Grozny was once a pile of bodies and debris and was rebuilt to a grand capital city that Chechnya could be proud of. Kadyrov runs Chechnya like his own personal kingdom, consolidating his power and using Russia's backing to bankroll his whims. Kadyrov has invited numerous celebrities to lavish parties in Chechnya, treats a professional soccer team in Grozny like his own personal team, he often plays with them. In fact, he actually invited like a former World Cup winning Brazilian squad to Chechnya to play a friendly match against that team. He claimed that the Brazilians weren't paid to be there, but... Mm. Um, <laughs> he also owns racehorses who compete internationally um, in Melbourne. His, one of the horses he was involved with won the Melbourne Cup. But um, an Australian politician asked for the money to be quarantined until proof of how it would be used would be was submitted because... There is a lot of concern that the Melbourne Cup is used by international criminals to launder money. Who would have thought? Horse racing. Not shady at all. While the human rights abuses and corruption are everywhere, the economy and Chechen industry have generally improved and in quite stark contrast. Uh, that being said, the Chechen government is still heavily reliant on Russian money. According to a 2016 report by Russian opposition leader Ilya Yashin, Kadyrov collected enormous wealth primarily through the theft of federal subsidies for Chechnya. Between 2001 and 2014, Chechnya has received $6 billion plus U.S. dollars worth of subsidies, grants, and donations, with federal subsidies accounting for 80% of the public's, republic's budget, not including funds so allocated for infrastructure managed at the federal level, such as roads. So, like, 80% of the stuff in Chechnya is funded by Russian money, is subsidized by Russian money, not including all the stuff that's already paid for by the federal Russian government. <laughs> so, um, federal funds often do not reach the people. For example, the fleet of official vehicles in Chechnya accounts for half of all official vehicles in the North Caucasus republics. Public funds are funneled through the Ahmad Kadyrov Foundation, which, while being registered as a charity, has never produced or published any financial reports as required by Russian law. These violations just get ignored by the Russian Ministry of Justice, even though they also heavily enforce these rules on every other NGO in the country and charity in the country. 
The foundation operates a building company that services most of the publicly procured infrastructure projects in the Republic and also collects a fee from all working citizens of Chechnya, ranging from 10 to 30% of their earnings. Kadyrov declares an annual income of 4.84 million rubles, which is about $64,000, and that is wildly inconsistent with the ownership of Lamborghinis, watches, racehorses, and mansions. Um, he has been personally implicated in several instances of torture and murder. A number of Chechens opposed to Kadyrov have been assassinated abroad, and several witnesses, including high-ranking Chechen officials, have reported the existence of a 300-name murder list. The Human Rights Watch organization has published numerous briefing papers on torture in Chechnya. There are operational military units who are under the control of Kadyrov and who torture in secret detentions and continue to the trend of, quote, forced disappearances. According to Human Rights Watch, torture is widespread and systematic. Anna Politkovskaya uh, reported heavily on Chechnya and Kadyrov's abuses and was said to be working on an article revealing human rights abuses and torture in Chechnya at the time of her murder. There are many more specific murders and disappearances he can be connected to that we know of directly, but there are even more where his involvement might not be direct, but has created a climate for such abuses. So currently in Chechnya, the purges of LGBTQ people are an example. While he has not been personally implicated with, like, literally murdering someone himself, he definitely has created a climate. It's not like anything he says when well, he's exactly. asked about it helps his credibility and, you know, oh, I'm not involved because, like, yeah. You just have to listen to what the, the bullshit that comes out of his mouth. Yeah, exactly. Um, so he previously has condoned and, and encouraged extrajudicial killings of homosexuals and as an alternative to law enforcement. In some cases, gay men in prison have been released early specifically to enable their murder by relatives. The documentary Welcome to Chechnya, uh, thanks by HBO, follows the Russian activists attempting to help Chechen LGBTQ people escape and find safety abroad. The abuses documented in numbers of people they have helped lean into the idea that this is more than just homophobia, but homophobia is so rampant and encouraged that it has turned into a pogrom. Chechnya has obviously denied the allegations that have, and have called them lies and disinformation. Uh, Kadyrov's spokesman's basis for his denial is that, quote, you cannot detain or persecute people who simply do not exist in the Republic. If there were such people in Chechnya, the law enforcement organs wouldn't need to have to, deal, wouldn't need to have to do anything with them because their relatives would send them somewhere from which there is no returning. Putin's spokesman Dmitry Peskov also said that there had been no evidence to support his allegations, adding that there had that he had no reason to doubt Kadyrov, and no one under his rule has been persecuted for their sexual orientation, which is obviously a huge fucking lie. In an HBO Real Sports interview in 2017, Kadyrov said, quote, We don't have those kinds of people here. We don't have any gays. If there are any, take them to Canada. Praise be to God. Take them far away from us so we don't have to look at them or have them at home. To purify our, to purify our blood, if there are any, take them. If we have gay people, I'm telling you officially, their relatives won't let them because of our faith, our mentality, customs, traditions. Even if it's puni punishable under the law, we would still condone it. Honor killings is what he's talking about. When asked about the accusations of systemic torture, Kadyrov said, quote, They made it up. They are devils. They are for sale. They are subhuman. God damn them, God damn them for slandering us. Some other Kadyrov highlights. Um, he approved the honor killing of several women in 2009 based on the belief that they were engaged in adultery, and he supports polygamy in Muslim-majority republics and believes that Muslims who speak out against the practice are not true adherents to their faith. You know what, Kadyrov? Give us your LGBT people. Yeah, I give, mean... Like... Well, he won't, because he'd just rather... I know he that. won't, but <laughs> I'm like... You, 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 you say, bring the Canada... Like, okay, yeah, we'll fucking take them over you. Because yeah. fuck you. Sorry for me getting so agitated, but it legitimately agitates me. 
these kinds of pogroms. Yeah, it's um, honestly, I just recommend everybody go watch that documentary if they if you're able to because it's worth it. <laughs> yeah, I it it just this, that that kind of prosecution over due to a characteristic that no one has any control over. Yeah. Makes me so unbelievably angry. Same. Having people really close to me in the LGBT community, LGBT plus community, excuse me, having seen what they've had to go through, I've never personally encountered it, obviously, for obvious reasons, but I have been there firsthand, witnessed it firsthand, what some of these people go through and then to hear that there are people going through worse yeah pisses me off it's it's really bad yeah so i just have a really quick i don't know end thought i guess you can consider this the epilogue i suppose (laughs) take this as a perspective from an outsider i suppose chechnya is a region held hostage by two extremes On one end, there is the Russian oligarchy, a country still searching for identity in the post-Soviet world. Chechnya was the first threat they faced following their independence and was also their first failure. The embarrassment for the first Chechnyan war still haunts Putin to this day, hence why he unleashed a brutal campaign on the separatists and terrorists. It continues to show in his continued attempts to boast the country's prestige as they and the United States continue to flex their muscles at the expense of global stability. On the other hand, there's the Chechen separatists. Quickly, the cause's leadership was hijacked by opportunists and extremists. They, were u- they used the suffering of the Chechen people to push their twisted theocracy. They took advantage of those who lost everything to have them join their ranks and proceed to murder innocents just as their enemy did in Grozny and elsewhere. As with all wars, it was the innocent who suffered, who were maimed, who were killed. They were forced to leave their homes, forced to join one side or the other, forced interference to submission, and if they refused to take any of those sides, they were just simply shot down in the streets. A new skyline won't hide the damage done, it won't hide the oppression, it won't hide the scars, and most importantly, it won't hide the dead. Nope. That's just how I feel about it. I this We've been honestly researching this since we finished up the Strange Wars episode. Yeah. It has taken us this long to do it just because similar to how it was when we were researching. Like, we, we kept drawing comparisons to uh, when we were researching Bosnia and Rwanda. Just, uh, like, there were moments that um, we still had a lot of research to do, but we just couldn't do any more that day just because of how horrific what we were learning was. And, yeah, like we said, there were no good sides. If you want to say the who really lost that war, it was the innocents. And in an interesting, both, Chech- both Chechnya and Russia lost any sense of innocence. Oh, yeah. Yeah, with that, should we update our fuckface power rankings? Let's update the fuckface power rankings. get out of here and Let's... let people get on with their days because yeah. it's been a very um, long... Start the music. The blackest eyes. The devil's eyes. 
I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. Some men aren't looking for anything logical. Some men just want to watch the world burn. All right. Uh, so I thought we were going to have more. Yeah, uh, me too, actually. And uh, we only have added two. We've added two. So, uh, Lindsay, do you want to... Right, so I think the first person that we're... Well, we're not... This this first one I want to mention, we're not adding them. We're just adjusting where they're ranking because, honestly, they're fucking horrible. Uh, Laverenti Beria is being bumped up from a previous position of 13. 12. 12? To, to number four. four yes. Because... Um, yeah, just garbage, overall trash. Like, I mean, the the deportations of Chechens and Ignush, etc., all the way east, and just his general apparatus of the KGB and the NKVD, just gross, disgusting, deserves to be at number four. Uh, after that is... He, oh, I just want to add, Beria like, has a huge hand in playing how fucked up the situation is in Chechnya today. And a lot of situations, actually. <laughs> but pr- primarily, yeah. yeah. His legacy, I guess, is actually a lot more... It's just not talked about very much, but he actually yeah. has a much more like str- powerful legacy, like in a bad way. Then, yeah, he should. Uh, so um, he yeah. can just be satisfied with being a murdering rapist pig. No. Then the next person adding to the list, who's ending up at number ten, is Shamil Basayev. I don't think there really needs to be an explanation here, but he was. I mean, he's he's called uh, Chechnya's Osama bin Laden for a reason. And he committed the worst acts of terrorism in the country. I mean, I guess you can argue the Russian government committed acts acts of terrorism, but which, yeah, true. But if we want to put a single man to it, uh, Shamil Basayev yep. is number 10. And then our third edition, second edition, but third update of the list is Ramzan Kadyrov at number 13. Again, like we mentioned, responsible for lots of purges and general misery in Chechnya. And so it's interesting because Russia's in a very interesting position with Kadyrov because it's so there, are, there are some rumblings that Putin and the Russians are a little bit afraid of Kadyrov at this point because Kadyrov is keeping Chechnya in line and is keeping the Chechen quote-unquote problem um, under wraps successfully, although brutally. But Russia really can't afford to go to war with Chechnya again. And so he, they need to rely on Kadyrov to keep people pacified. And so I think there's like an element, maybe not of fear, but of certainly apprehension and being too critical of Kadyrov and his government on the part of the Russians because they really just really can't afford to have any conflict with Chechnya again. But regardless, Kadyrov, piece of shit, he is number 13. And so we'll post an updated list here of the rankings just for fun. But we'll let you guys go now because we've held you captive for long enough. <laughs> <laughs> There's almost 30 people on this list now. Huh. Just shy of 30. We have 29. She's growing. Yeah, she is. All right. Uh, oh, oh, I was about to say next episode we might add some more, but I think most of the people that we have mm, are probably already that on the we're going to talk about it are already on the list. So, yeah. uh, Speaking of the next episode, that's uh, we're taking August off. At most, expect another nonsense. Uh, we're going to be working on some... Some future projects here, which we'll announce on our social media coming up. Yes. So we're actually the first... The thing we're going to work hard, hardest on here is a, a, news, a, a newsletter that'll be through your email. So it'll be a good way that we can get episodes out episodes out to everybody as they come out and other just updates for those of you who aren't using social media. And hopefully it'll just allow us to 
connect with everybody a little bit more directly. Yeah. Um, the other thing we have going here in just July is uh, we're doing trivia again on July 17th on Zoom. Um, so no, a week from the day we're recording this. The so. world is kind of opening up a little bit again, but we're going to keep things on Zoom still just to be safe. But I think that hopefully we'll be able to go back to physical trivia soonish. But for now, join us on Zoom and uh, yeah. Yeah, should be good. Uh, we we uh, this time it is a fundraiser to help us buy a new microphone. Yes. Unfortunately, mine is kind of showing its age a little bit. Uh, I would like to get the same kind of microphone that Lindsay has because it's actually awesome. <laughs> Uber mic is a actually fantastic microphone, as you can hear. <laughs> We've been having some issues with our technical uh, our equipment lately, so it's time to be upgrading. And unfortunately, that costs a lot of money. So any support people are willing to help us out with is appreciated. Yeah, any amount that you can donate, it's just one donation per Zoom account. Uh, if you're going to have multiple people on the Zoom call, again, just one donation. Uh, but if you're going to have multiple people on the Zoom call with you, uh, just please follow COVID guidelines. Yeah. Um, we know restrictions are kind of getting lifted and whatnot, but please just keep an eye out in your area. We don't want people to get sick. And yeah. Uh, with that also said, uh, Panastoria is now fully vaccinated. Yeah. Um, so yeah. We encourage you to do the same. We absolutely encourage you to do the same. I guess, uh, oh, in the, so the, expe- sorry. That's okay. <laughs> um, next episode, I guess we should, we can announce it's going to be our season five opener. Yeah. It is the September 11th attacks. 20th anniversary. So Woo. we are going to get that out on the anniversary. So yeah, that's, uh, I don't have a fact. I think you guys have heard enough from us. So All of our facts came in learning this episode. Pretty so. much. Yeah. So uh august maybe expect another nonsense we'll let you know but other than that uh, i hope you guys are safe my name is jonah i'm Lindsay. kevin is also always present thank you guys very much i'll talk to you soon